Unlocking What Was Cool. Hosted by Mike Lane and Neil Gilbert. And that's why I have a court order from Spotify demanding that Mike be returned from Japan. Well, here I am, Dan. Uh, <laughs> not Dan. Uh, Neil, because I've had uh, too much time now with friend of the show, Dan. But we're live, Neil. We're live. Oh, well, Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad after all these weeks off, you uh, you still remember my name. Just barely. <laughs> just maybe, barely. Maybe, yeah, just maybe you and Dan should uh, should do. Maybe, maybe I'll just bring Dan in. He can do the episode without me. That would make a lot more sense because <laughs> you and Dan were just in Japan for a solid, what, nine or ten days, a while gallivanting around Japan. You went to a Pokemon Fest. You, I'm assuming you went to a sake bar or sake or sake i don't know how to say it you went to a japanese baseball game you've been all over and i want to spend the first little bit of this episode talking about your your trip to japan so top level is it a country worth going to (laughs) uh yes it is neil absolutely Uh, mostly for their gamecube selection that's uh that's what this is all about today (laughs) no japan was (laughs) was absolutely fantastic definitely a bucket list item that i've always wanted to do uh i think just us being us growing up how we did we got influenced by a lot of things from Japan uh, for a long time. So it was cool to kind of be in that environment and be in the home of Mario, which is not Italy. It's uh, it's actually Japan. Uh, crazy. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Um, and uh, Japan was just so cool in so many ways. Uh, I had been to Asia before, but uh, Japan was a, a, a bit of a different beast when it came to all kinds of different things. Loved how, just how clean everything was in, in something like Tokyo, Uh no garbage everywhere. Uh, no garbage anywhere, uh, despite the fact that there's also no garbage cans, which was uh, an mm. interesting move uh, <laughs> to, to do. But um, uh, seeing the baseball game there was very, very cool. Uh, Japanese fans absolutely rabid for their baseball teams. Uh, we sat in the supporters section as well and just watched the fireworks, literally watched fireworks, but also just watched people go nuts every time someone got a hit. Everyone had their own little chant, which was so funny. Uh, they had umbrellas that they would pop up every time someone uh, got a home run, which we had like four home runs in the game, which was wow. uh, pretty good. Uh, definitely the, the level is a bit lower than I'd say the MLB, but still quite high and still some some good players for sure. And it was just so much fun to be in that environment. Uh, felt close to like a soccer game in terms of having like the support, mm-hmm. the the home supporters and away supporters, and everyone doing their chants and everything That's uh, cool. within uh, the stadium. Uh, that was definitely a highlight for sure. And then food is probably my other biggest highlight. I mean, of course, you and I uh, have I eat, eaten sushi for years now, and has definitely been a staple for us. And uh, and yeah, it's gonna be tough to eat sushi again, Neil, because, really? oh my God. Uh, I needed to know. Just, it was so good. It was yeah. just so good. So uh, is it true that like the sushi here is very North Americanized? Like how different is it? Like it's hard to, I know it's really hard to describe food since we're not, we talk about <laughs> cereal and fruit here for the most part. Our palates are not that advanced. So how is, how, what's the main difference between Japanese and North American sushi? I, I mean, I think just like freshness is probably your number one that you're looking at. Just like everything is just melting your mouth. As soon as you start eating it, which is just such a cool feeling. Nice. Uh, uh, and, and even the rice, too. Like, the rice is just so fresh and, and sticky uh, and uh, just works so well with the rest of the uh, the, the, the fish. Uh, mm-hmm. I had real crab rather than imitation crab sushi. Yeah. Uh, mm. oh, wow. That is really, really good. Expensive. 
but yeah. uh, but still really good. Um, the they also put wasabi within uh, the rice uh, oh. rather than like you adding it as a side. And and as far as I remember, the wasabi that we have here in North America is technically like fake wasabi. It's right. not like the real one. So we got to have the real one there, which is honestly not as spicy. It's more just like like it's almost like eating ginger more so where you're just okay. like opens up your nostrils like mm, like it's okay. not like it's a like, kick in the nose here like what we get yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's more of a linger and it's very right. very nice especially especially on the salmon ones and they all ask mm. you too if you want wasabi or not i feel like they asked us because we were white and right <laughs> just probably like, Are you sure honestly you, you want the wasabi and eh, so so good i mean the ramen also was mm. fantastic all the food in japan was fantastic the katsu as well but the sushi was just that extra level of amazing and um and nice. and so delicious uh, so definitely a huge highlight uh for me uh, uh the sushi the food now the restaurants that you went into it sounds like you mm. went to some sushi and ramen places did, did you know the names of them like was anything english like how was it getting around like did you know the name of the places or the waitresses or waiters that were serving you like how was that well, sometimes uh, a friend of the show, Dan, who I went with, he had a lot of these places saved. But but what ended up happening is honestly, we would just go into a place that looked good. And uh, most of the time, they would just have Japanese uh, titles on there or like like Japanese signs uh, right. on their stores. And, and, but most of them were just these small stores that are not chains. It's just like someone owns it. Like mm-hmm. there's the, the, the owners at the cash. You know, and then like the, the chefs are, are are in the middle, and everyone's around them, kind of thing. And like, yeah, uh, you sit around them in the in the big table uh, at, right. at the counter, kind of as you probably see on uh, in TV with uh, with sushi restaurants and sushi. Like in orders, Freaky but... Friday when they go to the Chinese restaurant. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, like like some places we we had looked up ahead of time that I guess were more known. We went to a curry place that was mm. a a bit of a chain that uh, that that we had seen uh, in different places but uh, a lot of the the areas were just kind of like oh this looks really good and it doesn't have a huge line which was right. kind of how we tried to play it <laughs> it's just like look for things that don't have like the the biggest lines so we're not waiting forever but like even if you did stand in line it it got to you pretty quickly uh one of the things mm-hmm. i'd like to point out neil is is one of my favorite things about just observing uh japan on the mm-hmm. trip and it's that things just work Oh, and uh, and and that's just a nice thing that we don't have in North America. Most things mm-hmm. don't work. No. <laughs> and uh, transit system, especially, obviously, the transit was fantastic there. A lot better than here in Toronto, which only has like two real lines, and right. Japan has like forty. That's insane. Uh, <laughs> I would love to. I would just want to go to Japan. I'd check that out and then turn around and leave, just to be like, okay, this is what it could be. This is like, what it could be. <laughs> well, it was really funny because we were looking at the maps, and we'd be on and the subways, and we'd be looking at the the TV screens that they would have that would show you all the different lines and show you where you are on yours. And um, we were looking at it and we, we realized that they had these numbers beside each little area. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't figure out what the numbers were because they seemed to be arbitrary. And they were changing as well. And then we realized that the numbers were all for how long it takes you to get to that stop. Oh, my God. So it had like a live wait. It was like you're in line at like an amusement park, like uh, Wonderland or Disney or something. Well, it wasn't live. It was it was static. It just oh, because okay. the train oh. always gets there wow. in 15 minutes. I thought know, it was like or, a digital board, like an airport that showed like your ETA kind of thing, like, uh, you know, 20 minutes to this stop or whatever. So it was just they knew that's how long it took. That's yep. wild. 
Yeah, that 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 was perfect. That described everything right there. What was the biggest uh, number? Do you remember? Um, I mean, the lines go for a long time, so I they guess. only show. I think, if I remember correctly, they only show the first like, like eight after you, basically after okay. your stop. Um, when you're looking at the board, just because there's so many stops. So, uh, but uh, so I think like maybe twenty five was the biggest um, oh, wow. that that I saw. But it was just really funny to like kind of realized that we all looked at each other at the same time. We're like, oh my God, that's what the numbers mean. Yeah. Just because that's something that we could never, ever have here, right? Like, there's well, no way. No, I know. Like, I was saying to my parents when you were away, I was like, yeah, he's in he's in Japan. Like, he's really, I know that, like, we're very invested in, uh, whenever we go to different cities, we love checking out the transit system to see how different it is. Yeah. Um, and we were talking about how Japan is, like, 100 years ahead of Canada, Toronto especially, and most parts of America as well. Like, it's just, they're just light years away from us, and they're just going to continue. It feels like it's exponentially getting better, whereas we're, like, slowly <laughs> trying to still figure out streetcars, you know, um, and stuff. They had the bullet train, you know, and, like that. Yeah, was, well, we're never getting that. <laughs> oh, never. And and that was another highlight. Riding the Shinkansen, the bullet train was so much fun. Uh, it felt like because I don't think we'd ever really gone and looked outside the window of something other than a plane uh, right. that was going going by something so fast. And it honestly felt like someone had clicked fast forward. Neat. on the remote and yeah. <laughs> just you're seeing these like these images so fast and and it kind of takes your mind a second to figure out what the hell is going on so you get a little dizzy at first when you look out the window yeah um and uh, and that was like so cool going at around 280 kilometers an hour i think Jeez. uh was the the speed meanwhile the via rail which was our our train here pretty sure the via goes uh slower than a car uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I don't. I don't think it cracks a hundred. Maybe it gets to a hundred. <laughs> might get to one ten when it's like in the middle of nowhere. But definitely through the cities, it's not going much quicker than that's. That's the thing about in in Toronto is that it, you never really get to see the true potential of a car because everyone's just going stop and go <laughs> the entire way through the city. So you don't really ever get to see the full potential of a car compared to Via. But yeah, Via is nowhere close to uh to the bullet train system. It just it just works too, and it was so cool to to watch it. And when they turn, they the the, the tracks go in almost forty five degree angles like Jeez. a roller coaster because it has to go like that so that uh, it doesn't basically just fly off the tracks. Yeah. Uh, so it was cool to see that engineering. And while I was uh, in it, I was you know uh, googling the Shinkansen, learning about it, uh, being around for sixty years at this point. Uh, mm. So Japan is at least 60 years ahead of us <laughs> when it comes to transit. And they've never had a single uh, critical injury or or uh, death on uh, the Shinkansen. I mean, I like to think that that's true, but I also don't know how much that's censored at the same time. <laughs> I mean, it hasn't crashed is basically oh, what I Oh, I see what you're saying. Trying okay. to say, yeah. <laughs> I thought you meant like no suicides, no like accidents Oh, no, like no. That. I'm, talk I'm talking gotcha. about, oh, no, lots of Fatal those, crashes, <laughs> you mean. Okay, yeah, lots of those. Yeah. Yeah, fatal crashes. That makes more sense. That's impressive. That's really good. Yeah, and uh, and so maybe when we're long dead, we'll have a bullet train here. But uh, <laughs> cool. And, and and I'd say my last highlight was, uh, of course, a very exciting thing. I got to go to uh, um, Aki Akihabara, which is mm -hmm. the, uh, the electric the, city. That, that's right, the electronics district, and mm -hmm. that was a ton of fun. Ton of stores, just walking into uh, dozens of electronic and gaming stores, which was really cool to see the Japanese side of things. Saw an import section of North American games Neat. at one <laughs> store, which was really funny. Um, uh, a little surprised at how hard it was to look for GameCube games. Uh, not many stores had GameCube or N64 hmm. stuff. There was 
tons of Super Famicom uh, stuff at yep. every single store. Lots of Wii, lots of Switch, tons and tons of Switch, but uh, the small sections were GameCube, N64, and Xbox. Those were the, the back of the store area because no one owns an Xbox in uh, Japan, right. so uh, very few of those. Uh, but uh, I did, Neil end up acquiring a Japanese GameCube while I was there. That's super exciting. You sent me a picture of your uh, your haul while you were away, and it's massive, all the music and uh, and video game stuff that you got, which is awesome. I'm very jealous of that that silver Japanese GameCube, and you got a couple games with it too. So what were the games that you got with your GameCube? I'll let you announce it. Oh, sure. So I got Mario Tennis. Uh, we got uh, Homeland, which is one of the games we're going to be covering on this episode. Mm-hmm. We got Mario Party 4 and 5. Uh, 5 ha- having a holographic box art, which cool. is very cool. Uh, we also got uh, Zelda The Wind Waker, which is uh, one of my favorite games of all time. Had to pick that one up. Mm-hmm. Also, that was the most expensive of the lot. That was $34. Uh, Canadian, uh, which was thirty like thirty four dollars Canadian. Wow, which is so cheap for a, for Wind Waker, uh, and the rest were around twenty, uh, and sometimes fifteen. Fifteen dollars for Mario Party Five, Neil. Wow. Mario Party Five in North America, the North American version goes for well over a hundred these days. Yep, uh, and as well as I got the Nintendo Puzzle Collection for around twenty, uh, which is a great Japanese exclusive pickup. That's awesome. I That's a great collection right there. Now, I, I guess you can buy them on eBay. I haven't actually checked what the eBay prices are for these games. We're going to talk about them oh, a bit later. You've got the you've got the prices tracked for me, which is which was amazing. But that's really cool. And, and you gave me Pikmin a little while ago, the Japanese version of Pikmin. So we'll have to get together and see what that game looks like uh, on the Japanese GameCube. Uh, that's mm-hmm. an amazing pickup. I love that. It's it's so crazy and sad to see that the price difference between GameCube games in Japan and here. It's, it's wild. Um, but like you said, the collector out there they're more after the super famicom i'm assuming the the original famicom as well uh oh yeah probably pretty big our nes basically i'm I'm surprised about the xbox because it's funny when you when you see x or when you see video game console sales uh month to month usually it's uh switch and ps5 are the two big ones and then you you occasionally see xbox in there and some weeks it's like hundreds of xbox sold in (laughs) in japan it's like not even funny like i it's it's insane how how little xbox does out in japan compared to here it sells pretty good like in north america it's still the third in the in the race but it sells way more respectively than that uh xbox just doesn't have that same output of uh of mostly like jrpgs there's not as much on there um and that that's Mm -hmm. why that's really cool i loved all the photos that you're posting though i could see lots of pokemon lots of kirby i love that giant shelf of just like stuffed pot of greeds from (laughs) Yu-Gi-Oh. what was that what were those pillows what were those they were pillows, I believe, or like plushies, basically. There were tons of little arcade areas in um, in Japan to go to, and that was one of the ones where you you, you use the claw and try and get it. Oh, and, the and claw pick machines. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So lots of lots of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I did go to the Pokemon Cafe, and I ate Eevee. Eevee has been eaten. <gasps> you ate Eevee? What, is, what does Eevee <laughs> taste like? Is he chewy? Is he, uh, what's he, savory? Describe Very- him. Very bread-like, you know, hmm. uh, doughy, very doughy. Doughy, he's a doughy boy. Okay, that's good. <laughs> was their menu all like Pokemon stuff? Like you could have like a Magikarp and a an Ekans. I don't know what else is edible. I guess all Pokemon are edible technically. And technically, I had a Gengar <laughs> smoothie with with Eevee, and uh, from the show, Brayden had a uh, a Snorlax uh, bowl, basically, hmm. uh, big Snorlax meal. Uh, and there was a Pikachu meal. There was a oh what was the other one? The Pikachu meal was the the obvious one. You know, that's, that's sure. the basic. Uh, was uh, there a Vanalite? Could you have a Vanalite cone? 
<laughs> Unfortunately, no. Big miss. Big miss. That is a um, huge miss. Yeah. <laughs> but they had lots of lots of uh, interesting uh, interesting dishes there for sure. And we had to book way ahead of time too. It's a crazy environment. Pikachu, Chef Pikachu himself comes out oh, wow. and greets, greets everyone. The kids were going insane. Felt like a mosh pit was going to start any minute in front of Pikachu. <laughs> Uh, he had his uh, his little song and dance number that he did with his handler because I don't think he could see anything outside of the, <laughs> the costume. Uh, had a little jumps. It was managed to jump jump and twirl at one point too, which was mm. very impressive. So big shout out to the the, the mascot uh, there and uh, and being inside that like eighty degree <laughs> suit. I had no idea Pikachu was a five star chef. That's that's amazing. We should get a show with him and Gordon Ramsay. I think that would be a lot of fun. Pikachu's trying to cook the lamb sauce and Gordon Ramsay's not having it. <laughs> We have Detective Pikachu. Next up is Chef Pikachu. That's true. Yeah, that's true. He's getting all of his credentials out there. <laughs> Chef, detective, maybe a mechanic next. Who knows? Um, no, that's amazing. I, I did send you on a mission to Japan to uh, to seek out any interesting flavors of Oreos. This was something we talked about offline. Uh, but you, uh, you mentioned that the Oreo game in Japan, not as strong as what we get out here. Did you see any Oreo representation out there? I did not, Neil. Zero wow. Oreo representation. Uh, Oreo, if you're listening, you should you should get more into uh, what Kit Kat does in Japan. Mm-hmm. Of course, Kit Kat or Japan is famous for having uh, crazy Kit Kat flavors, many, many, many flavors. I picked up a few, gave you some. Uh, we got matcha, strawberry. We got there's also apple, milk tea, melon, uh, tons and tons of different ones. And I I, had, I did some research on why this is. Uh, Kit Kat is very big in Japan and has so many different flavors because it all stems from when Kit Kat originally uh, was in Japan and the Japanese people would start buying Kit Kats as kind of good luck charms or give them for New Year's gifts uh, as good fortune because Kit Kat, the word Kit Kat in Japanese, uh, it kind of sounds like the Japanese word for good luck. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. I knew that the Kit Kat uh, flavor variety in Japan was big because in our specialty novelty candy stores here, you know, where you get your your import British chocolate for the most part in Japanese, most of the Japanese stuff that we get here is the Pocky, the little uh, breadstick dipped in chocolate, whatever. And then uh, Kit Kats, those are the main things. You got all those different flavors. And you brought me back two little mini ones. I got my milk tea one and my, uh, my, it's it's pronounced Machi, right? That's the one, that's the- Matcha. Matcha, the matcha one. I had those last night while I was uh, was watching some TV. They were very good. The milk one is, it's got a sweetness to it. It's sweeter than like a, it's almost fruity. It's kind of yeah. fruity. And then the 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 matcha one is, uh, it, it kind of tastes like, honestly, like just like a matcha square that I remember, our, which is a terrible way to describe it. Um, I'm trying to figure <laughs> out a way. It's It kind of just tastes like a regular chocolate bar, but it does have like a different aftertaste to it. Uh, I love that flavor. I don't use it enough in baking. I should pick up some matcha powder. Um, mm. maybe, maybe the bulk barn has it. I'll try and make some, uh, some matcha <laughs> brownies or something sometime. The problem is I think just the color. That's why most people don't use it here is that it, it kind of cooks into that kind of ugly seaweed green. green. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't it, like even the Kit Kat bar itself doesn't look appealing. It looks like, <laughs> like a, I'm eating a chunk of Shrek or something like that. Honestly, not the most appealing thing, but I ate them both and they're, they were delicious. So thank you so much for bringing me back some Japanese candy. You also brought me back a, a, a lovely Pikmin hand towel. 
which I adore. You mentioned uh, you went to the Nintendo Japan store and the Pikmin love is strong right now, obviously, thanks to the, the, the amazing success of Pikmin 4, which I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about in the coming weeks. Um, I yeah. love it. Thank you so much. That's perfect timing, too, because I just bought Pikmin 4 on Switch and I'm very much enjoying it. So as a lifelong Pikmin thing, Mike, thank you for your uh, your contribution to my Pikmin horde. My, my service. <laughs> yes, thank you for the Pikmin service. I love it. It's, it's so good. You even brought me back a little booklet that they had at one of the stores, too, that had a whole bunch of advertisements for Pikmin 4. I can't read any of it, uh, but it's really cool. It's just got a bunch of screenshots from the game. It's got all of the all of the different types of Pikmin lined up. Collection of KitKat bars and Pikmin merch is always welcome. So thank you so much. Oh, of course, of course. Glad you like it. Uh, definitely, definitely, probably one of my biggest shopping trips. You know, it's it's rare that I go somewhere to to just shop, but there is a good chunk of the, this trip where. I just wanted to shop because everything there is one things that we like right. and and two just quality like everything's quality there and it's relatively cheap uh, mm-hmm. at least definitely cheaper than uh, buying it in Canada so it was a lot of fun honestly just shopping in Japan. Yeah that that, that is what most people go to do. I know you guys were bringing extra luggage just to bring things back. Uh, which yep. is smart because uh, I know uh, I saw Braden's post too, and he bought a lot of various anime books and games and DVDs and Blu-rays and everything else. So I'm sure you guys brought back lots of things. And w- last question before we get into the episode: mm. Was there any doubt or thought in anybody's mind when you were going home that like something might not be allowed back? Ooh, good question. Um, I-, I knew that the GameCube was allowed on the plane. <laughs> <laughs> because I had done this previously with the PS5 and bringing that back from, from the US and uh, had to Google, are game consoles allowed on a plane? And yes, they are. So for anyone who wants to bring back a game console, you can bring it on a plane. But um, no, I don't I don't think so. Maybe uh, we, we figured friend of the show, Braden, was going to get stopped because this is how life goes for him <laughs> he just get, get stopped at random places of course he was the only person who border security uh talked to and asked how much he brought back into the country uh so they were on to him for his massive supply of anime uh, that he brought back <laughs> but uh, that was the only one we were maybe worried about that he was gonna bring back too much uh and go over the limit of what you can bring back from japan but uh, other than that we we didn't bring back any japanese knives unfortunately but that mm. would be the other one i think I'd, I'd probably be like i wonder if he'll say anything yeah, knives and alcohol are probably the two big things. The uh, the Pokemon merch and uh, various Yu-Gi-Oh things or whatever it is that you guys bought, probably <laughs> safe. They knew, they could tell you from you guys a mile away what you had in your bags, you were safe. Oh, yeah. So I'm glad that you all made it home safe and I'm glad that you made it home especially so that we can continue on this lovely podcast of the Unlocking What Was Cool. So that was a great warm up. I loved hearing all about that trip. I'm sure the listeners did too. I bet we have a lot of folks out there who have either been to Japan or plan on going to Japan someday uh, like myself. But Mike, I think that it's about time that we jump into to, uh, episode 26 what do you say let's do it all about japan again it's just gonna be a japanese yep. episode let's just yep. do it in japanese neil nope that's not happening ladies and gentlemen welcome to episode 26 of the unlocking what was cool podcast the show about all things retro that we love from our childhood new episode every thursday on all the major podcast services we are almost certainly still the number one gamecube podcast on the internet despite not always talking about the gamecube you can support our show on patreon.com forward slash unlocking what was cool supporters at the five dollar level get to submit and vote for our monthly patreon elected episode last 
last week, Mike was in Japan, so I, Neil, brought on friend of the show and fellow podcaster Josh from the Still Loading Podcast to talk all about Star Wars Galactic Battlegrounds and all of our great memories of that game. If you haven't already, go back and check it out. This week, we are talking about some things that never left the Japanese islands. No, it's not Mike. Mike actually made it back from the Japanese yes. islands. It's five games that were exclusive to the Japanese market of the GameCube. Some great, some okay, and some that are just really weird. This is going to be a bit of a revisit to the GameCube was Cool podcast. We are covering five games on the Cube that we did not cover back on that show because these games did not make it to the North American library, which we covered one by one, sometimes 12 by 12. So Mike, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you now have some experience playing Japanese GameCube games at least a little bit in the last couple mm -hmm. days since you've been home, but did you know much about these, these games prior to going to Japan? Uh, not a ton. I mean, obviously, I knew Japanese exclusives ex existed. I learned about a lot of them just as you did when we were first researching for the GameCube is Cool podcast and seeing what was on the North American library and what wasn't. And there were a lot of these Japanese exclusive games that were scheduled to be brought over to North America, but they didn't because of uh, poor sales in Japan, poor sales of the GameCube as well, uh, and all kinds of other reasons too. Uh, the devs think, or the, the publishers thinking that the games were too weird for the North American <laughs> market, which is something that happened a lot. Like It's actually really lucky that we have something like Animal Crossing that just was almost a, a fluke of coming over to North America uh, was never honestly supposed to. So uh, it's it's interesting to look back on these and and think what could have been. But no, I, I, I never really had any experience playing them. I know you can get some ROMs of them. There's, there's ways to play Japanese games on your GameCube as well with a special, on your North American GameCube with a special converter. Mm -hmm. And of course, you can use a Dolphin emulator to play them. Uh, but... I had never looked into them too much other than a couple of videos, specifically for uh, something like the uh, Kiru Kiru uh, series. Uh, I had seen that a lot, and I think you had as well, Neil, where yeah. uh, it just was on, because it was on different uh, handheld consoles uh, when we were growing up, and I always hear people talking about that series as something that's a lot, like, very similar to something like Super Monkey Ball, which is something we love. So I was like, oh yeah, that game. And the one of the things that inspired me to do this, uh, or inspired us to, to do this episode was... Uh, a friend of the show, GameCube Galaxy, uh, uh, who's coming on today to talk about these games, uh, Marcello, who did a great, great YouTube video about this uh, about a year ago, I think, when we were still doing the GameCube is Cool podcast. And that's when I watched it because I, I do enjoy watching some of his videos, seeing what he has to say about these games. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know what? Like, that would be really cool to do this. And we've also had a lot of requests from listeners to do this episode to talk about uh, GameCube games that were exclusive to either like the PAL region or, or Japan specifically. So mm -hmm. I'm glad we are finally uh, doing something like this because uh, I've already learned a lot, Neil, with this research. Yeah, it's, it's there's still so many more GameCube games that we still can cover, which is cool. I'm glad that we're doing it piecemeal, too. I think we'll probably definitely do something like this again in the future when one of us goes back to Japan or to Europe or to one of the other PAL regions to pick up some mm -hmm. other exclusive games. Uh, the problem is that, like, what you had to do is we have to buy uh, <laughs> an, uh, the region-locked console. We only have, up until recently, North American consoles. Um, and this is something that I didn't really think about as a kid. No one did, really. No one was wondering why we weren't getting 
games that Japan was getting or that England was getting. We just yeah. cared about the games that we were we were getting because we just didn't straight up hear about any of these games. As as young kids who had limited access to the internet, we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have phones, we didn't we didn't really think about all of these games that came out in other countries. So we got our our Mario and we got our Zelda and we got Pokemon and we got several other games that were coming out of Japan, but like you kind of joked about earlier, we didn't really think about it. We thought Mario was this Italian guy. We didn't think of him as a Japanese pl- uh, character. Uh, I barely even thought of Nintendo as a Japanese company until I was basically a teenager. Honestly, like it was just the name on all the consoles that I that I had. I didn't think where th- where these games were being made or who was uh, who who was translating them into English and everything and making them specific to Canada. Um, but the Japanese GameCube did come out a little bit before we got it in North America. It came out on September 14th, 2001. And like you mentioned earlier, there are games that are specific for the Japanese GameCube. There are games that came out for Japan, PAL, and North America, thankfully. But region locking is a class of a digital rights management preventing the use of a certain product or service, such as a multimedia or hardware device outside of a certain region or territory. And I find region locking very interesting with uh, with gaming specifically because it's not always the case that a console will be region locked. Uh, it, it was for a while, but uh, mm-hmm. specifically, I think the Switch is one of the first home consoles that isn't. Um, I think PlayStation and Xbox have done it before, but most Nintendo consoles are. Uh, you have to basically mod your, if you want to, you can mod a North American GameCube to play Japanese games, uh, yeah. but it doesn't always go right for some people. Uh, the only other option for us, if you wanted to play these games is other than modding, you can emulate it on PC or straight up buy a Japanese GameCube like you did and bring it back, which <laughs> sounds more cost effective than buying GameCube games in North America, which makes no sense to me. Um, but it would be nice. We'll talk about this later. Obviously it would be nice to see some of these region locked games brought over to other countries because there are some weird ones for sure in the batch that we're talking about today, but there are definitely ones in here that I would love to play if I could understand what they were saying, even not being able to understand them. The games look fun. Um, it would just be really cool to live in a world where it would be possible to play all the Japanese games in the the way that uh, Japanese folk played them back in the early two thousands. Yeah, it's it's too bad, and and I am glad that, like you said, Switch is now region uh, free. So it it was cool to go to Japan and look at the Switch sections and be like, oh, like I could buy these games, and they're also quite a bit cheaper too, uh, in Japan, which was uh, uh, nice. There was none, no Switch game I was like really pining for. I was looking at Pikmin Four. I'm like, oh, I could get like a Japanese version of Pikmin Four, but I'm not sure if like. <laughs> the text would be different i'm not i don't know what the differences are nowadays like if you can just like switch on english or japanese uh who knows but um i do like that it's finally getting to that where it's region free because it's at this point in terms of our distribution networks and everything like all the release dates are the same now too Uh, like you said before the release dates would always be different but by years often uh Mm -hmm. now they all come out worldwide so i think we're at that point where we don't need region locks anymore no, and even like where people live. Like imagine if I like if for say for example you had to go or you wanted to go live in Japan for 5 years to work or to study abroad. You now can't play video games or at least it's harder to play video games because the GameCube that you has available to you doesn't play games in your native language. And the same thing here, people come to Canada and like the accessibility of playing games is way better now, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. and it, it makes sense for for these games to all be available cuz everybody lives everywhere now and also people have the ability to learn other languages and other cultures and everything with, you know, the the great apps like Duolingo, you know, you can <laughs> you can understand it. I have heard stories of people who played like Pokemon games before they came out in North America. 
somehow they would get ROMs or whatever of Japanese yeah. games. And they would just understand how to, like, they, they wouldn't know what was going on. They just wanted to play the game. They didn't so much care about any cultural difference or what the person was saying. They just wanted to, to, to experience the game as, as it is. And eventually, yep. I guess, they played the North American version. But one of the key differences, Mike, between the North American games and the uh, Japanese games is the packaging. Uh, obviously, must have stood out to you in the Japanese stores. What do the Japanese GameCube games look like? Well, uh, I, since you also have one, Neil, the mm-hmm. uh, the Pikmin game, you, you've seen kind of what they look like. They are uh, about like 25% smaller than a actual GameCube uh, game. They, they're about the size of, of a Switch case in terms of width and maybe just a bit shorter uh i honestly really like the compact size of them uh very nicely done uh they are the one biggest difference though is the fact that they are actually a cardboard sleeve on the outside Mm -hmm. and with this cardboard sleeve it damages very easily as cardboard does talk to anyone who owns a game boy color uh game case uh they get destroyed very easily so um that's one thing why some of these games are very highly valued depending on on their uh how basically how well the box was kept uh and some of the games i got were very well uh kept the nintendo puzzle uh collection is almost pristine it looks like it bar- it's barely being used while wind waker is definitely a used and loved uh cardboard <laughs> uh exterior which is fine i'm totally fine with that uh and then inside is a plastic case and then you open it up and it does have um the manual and everything on uh uh, on the inside, and it's uh, read from right to left, which is the traditional way you read Japanese uh, manga and uh, Japanese books. So that's kind of cool that the the uh, the manual is the same way. And uh, we also have the the game case inside, which is or the game disc inside, which it looks a little different. Uh, just slightly more artwork usually, and um, and honestly, one of the biggest differences for a lot of these games is the artwork itself. And uh, usually, what that means is that there are can no, be no weapons or no violence mm-hmm. really on the case. Uh, as well, Japanese versions are often more colorful, more saturated, uh, and a bit more kind of kiddish, you could say. Uh, and also, don't display kind of. Like think of think of Kirby's Air Ride. We have Angry Kirby yeah. uh, in uh, in North America, and then we have Happy Kirby in in Japan. And the box arts are almost identical, other than just his smiling face. And uh, that's just always been a funny thing with the Japanese versus North America. I mean, even Zelda: The Wind Waker, uh, which I have here, uh, I honestly love this box art way more than the. Uh, North American box art, which is that one, is obviously the gold subdued kind of um, uh, in the background. Link and the Dragon Boat are in mm-hmm. the background. This is basically what the uh, the the new one the Wii U for HD. Wii U. Yeah. Yes, it's basically that with a little bit of a different background, but but it looks way better in my opinion. Yeah, the the way that you can tell the difference between Japanese and North American artwork is always look at Kirby games. That's that yeah. I like that you brought up Air Ride. It's always like you have to get make give him. Give him a bit of a, like eyebrows, like make him like kind of look angry and give him a sword. And, you know, and then in the Japanese one, it's just him smiling and waving basically yep. at the front, which is awesome. Uh, yeah, it, it's cool to see. I love the differences in uh, in box art between the two, the two regions. Uh, I think if I had to, I would, I do definitely usually prefer the Japanese artwork to ours. And even the PAL, like I think of Resident Evil box art, which we talked about before. I love mm-hmm. the RE4 box art compared to ours, but 
in terms of packaging, like functionality wise, I like ours the best. Uh, I yes. like to have it in plastic with the sleeve and with the manual inside. I'm, I don't want to have to put my box into a sleeve and then put that sleeve onto a shelf. Uh, I like how you mentioned though, the, the puzzle collection uh, in really good shape uh, might be because whoever bought it didn't play it very much, but also <laughs> um, I do know that it's been said that Japanese people are very uh, protective of their, their things when they buy stuff. They're very respectful of their possessions and they take good care of them, especially video games. Uh, video games are, they're kind of kept like art almost. Uh, and some people yeah. do that too here in North America. Like you and I are pretty good about keeping our game collections in in good condition. We stack them properly. I try to keep mine out of sunlight, which is very hard to do in a condo. Um, <sighs> keep it in a you know dry, cold, dry place is I, I think what most packaging things say. Um, yeah. yeah, but like a lot of the times you see old GameCube games around here and it looks like a dog got to them or it looks like <laughs> someone was using it as a coaster for a while. Like it's insane that the state that some of these games you find them in, it's nice to know that uh, that Japan had a good selection of games in good shape because some of these games are 20 plus years old now. So they're only gonna start to look worse and worse. So take good care of your Japanese games there, Mike. Oh, I will. Thank you, Neil. Thank you. Uh, but uh, I think it is time for us to bring on our very special guest of the show. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good. You mentioned earlier that GameCube Galaxy is coming on, and I can see our phone lines are ringing, so he must be standing by waiting to come on. So welcome him onto the show. All right, Neil, joining us today is friend of the show, Marcello, at GameCube Galaxy. Of course, uh, we last had him on way back uh, on the GameCube Was Cool uh, podcast era, and so this is the first time he's been on the Unlocking What Was Cool podcast, so we're really excited to have him on to talk about some Japanese GameCube exclusives. And our first question to you, Marcello, would be, what is your favorite uh, Japanese GameCube exclusive game? Hey guys, I'm glad to be back here. So just to dive in quick, my favorite Japanese exclusive currently um, is actually Kuruvin Squash. Nice. Nice. Yeah, it's it looks so addicting. <laughs> it, it, yeah. it really is. And, you know, I actually grew up playing Kuru Kuru Kuruvin on the GBA back when it did launch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember getting that when I was actually visiting family in Italy and it was a, the European copy that was in English. So I played through it. I was hooked. And, um, you know, it wasn't until basically almost 20 years later where I finally had an opportunity to play Kuru and Squash on the GameCube. And uh, it, it's just a fantastic game. I'm, you know, we'll dive into it more as this episode goes on. But yeah. there's, a, there's definitely a, something about that game that's near and dear to me. Yeah, I, I discovered that franchise just... When did we get the GBA online with Switch? Was that this year or late last year? Um, that was... One of the first games that I, yeah, it was one of the first games that I checked out because I was like, you know, okay, I've played Mario, I've played Zelda, I've played Mario Kart, whatever. And then I just see this, this random ninth game, the heck is this? And I (laughs) I popped it on and uh, instantly fell in love with it. It's such an addicting puzzle game. And when I, when Mike and I were putting together the game list for, for this week, I was like, man, this, uh, this sounds familiar. And I I pop, I put on a video and I was like, oh geez, I didn't know they made a console version of this too. How is this franchise not a thing still? And it it made me mad for a second, but I'm glad to know that it existed on GameCube as well. And then I got sad because I realized that it wasn't on North American GameCubes, but nonetheless, uh, it's, maybe it'll be a franchise that'll come back someday, but I'm glad that that's your favorite because I think that would be mine today too. But I'm, I'm, 
I'm of the three of us. I'm the one who does not have a Japanese GameCube to uh, to stand on, unfortunately. But uh, excited to talk about them with you today. So I guess uh, with that, we'll jump into the first game of the day, which is Nintendo Puzzle Collection, which was released on February 7th, 2003, developed by Nintendo Software Technology and Intelligence Systems, published by Nintendo. It's a GameCube Japanese exclusive. Rates a 7.5 out of 10. Priced today at around $20 in Japan. So I guess that's Canadian dollars uh, translated from the yen, but it's also around 80 to $100 if you want to import it and this is a puzzle collection game yes and i own this now uh marcello i did buy the nintendo puzzle collection when i was in japan last week and uh bought it for a cool 20 dollars and it's in really good condition whoever owned this uh put it in the basement and did not play with it (laughs) that much clearly just (laughs) bought it for dr mario beat it and they were done but um it's a it's a fun puzzle game and i was surprised at how much i could do without any translation with it just because i think puzzle games are very inherent in terms of how you play them especially things like match three puzzle games and you kind of figure out like what to do what the prompts mean uh like where to go on the screen without needing uh any needing to know any japanese so that was a really kind of cool thing yeah that, that is one thing that definitely stands out with the puzzle collection and what's interesting is that it was planned for a north american mm-hmm. release um, it was actually canned very shortly before it was supposed to release over here, which I thought was interesting. Um, now, Mike, let me ask you, did you get the big box edition or is it just the standard edition that you found in Japan? Just the standard edition, but I have seen the big box uh, edition, which is comes with the GameCube Advance, uh, game, uh, the Game Boy Advance adapter, correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct, yes. Right, right. Because I, I do see on the back of the box it has... In Japanese, saying something about the <laughs> the, the Game Boy Advance <laughs> connector, because yeah, there is that whole other Game Boy Advance um, connectivity and kind of feature on this game. Correct. So with the three puzzle games on here being uh, Panel Pond, Doctor Mario, and Yoshi's Cookie, um, I mean the Game Boy. If you connect the Game Boy Advance to it, you basically get the NES versions of these games, which I thought was a really cool idea back then. So mm-hmm. you could get to play those on the GBA, um, mm-hmm. but then. The puzzle collection itself are basically remakes. Or I shouldn't say that. Yoshi's Cookie is a remake. That's definitely one that's brand new. But then Dr. Mario is really just a port of Dr. Mario 64. Yeah, right. Um, Just straight up port. And then Penalty Pond, I'll be honest, that was the first time I ever experienced that puzzle game. I know Pokemon Puzzle League was based specifically on that match three type puzzle game. Mm -hmm. But I had never played that prior. I just knew of, of it. So it wasn't until this where I finally tried it out. I'm like, okay, I can see why this is addictive. It was pretty cool to, to look at that one because, yeah, that was just such a different – because when I first looked at the box, I was like, is this supposed to be like Daisy or someone? Like, it's like, like <laughs> I, wasn't, yeah, yeah. I wasn't 100% sure what that was, panel de pawn. Um, and then, yeah, obviously I had to look it up and, and I saw that it released for the SNES in, what, 95, Neil? Yeah, 1995. Outside of Japan, it's known as uh, uh, Tetris Attack. That's what they call it. That's mm. the game basically outside of the country. Apparently, that game was was included in this collection so that it would the game would appeal uh, towards women. At least that's what the original game was made for, apparently. They used female actresses to promote the game through television commercials and everything. So I didn't really... Th- I, I never really thought of puzzle games as being gendered, honestly. No. <laughs> but maybe in, the, maybe in the 90s, they did. I, I don't know if they always kind of felt like just anybody can play them for the most part. But I didn't know that uh, Dr. Mario, the N64 version, which uh, Marcello mentioned is the N64 
port in this uh, collection. Japan didn't get that game on the N64. That was only a North American and I think a PAL release. Correct. Uh, so this was the only way that they could play that game in Japan is if they had a, a, a GameCube and the, and this uh, this collection. Ne- I didn't I didn't realize that it was the NES version. That uh, I guess that makes that sense when you plug in your Game Boy Advance. So you're kind of getting six games for the price of three in this uh, mm-hmm. in this one. That's really cool. And that was the attraction of bundling it with that cable. They were trying to show, like, hey, if you connect the GBA, you get more out of it. And right. it, again, a lot of things you could see that were precursors for what they ended up moving forward with in terms of um, just this, like, hybrid of handheld and home console connectivity. Yeah, I mean, we yeah. talked a lot about on the GameCube is Cool podcast about how they didn't do a great job with the GBA features uh, that a lot of these mm-hmm. games have. Uh, and this is actually one that is probably one of the best ones because this would be awesome to have not only to play these games, but also have that bundle uh, with the, the, the cable. Because I'm, uh, you might know better than us, uh, Marcello, but we're, did that bundle exist in North America at all? It did not. I don't believe it did. Yeah, like a game coming with the uh, the with, Game Boy oh, Advance. Wait, hold on, yeah. yes, it did. Oh, that, that's my yeah. bad. Yeah, Zelda Four Swords Adventures. Yes. Yeah. True. True. <laughs> I blanked out for a second, and I just I just turned around. I'm like, is it looking right at me? I'm like, oh yeah, you. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't one of the Pac Man games come with it too? Or am I imagining that? Uh, versus. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm not sure if it came with that. I think you actually had to buy the separate Correct. ones okay. because I thought that there was another one, but maybe you're right. There could be, but but even even if there hmm. were, I mean, Four Swords sold less than five hundred thousand copies. Like right. these. The, it wasn't uh, it wasn't readily available, so it, it was too bad that that we didn't get more of these games. Like I, I feel like with any first party release that Nintendo had that had a Game Boy Advance uh, uh, usability, they should have had a package for it. But that's that's a whole other tale of of the bundling of the 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 Game Boy Advance uh, cable and everything. But uh, yeah, the the puzzle league or the puzzle um uh, games themselves, uh, I always have enjoyed Dr. Mario, but uh, I I never really uh understood why we didn't get like something on game on uh, GameCube for, it, especially cuz Dr. Mario was in Smash. Like for me, that's where I actually know Dr. Mario from uh before anything was was Smash. And of course, uh, he comes out on, in Smash in 2001 uh, for uh, for the GameCube, and then we don't get him on that console, which was really sad. Or Wii. Was there a, I don't think there's a Dr. Mario game on. We didn't really get a Dr. Mario game again until I think there was like a Dr. Luigi game on mobile. Other than that, I think it's just been ports and everything of the NES slash Game Boy slash N64 game. I think there might have been a Dr. Mario game for the WiiWare. Actually, oh, we were. Okay. I believe there was a Doctor Mar- if either for WiiWare or DSiWare, one or the other. Uh, where games go to die, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, that whole digital only. Log into your Wii now to check. Never mind. Um, yeah, I think you're right. I think the Wii is the one that was on there. I didn't buy much WiiWare stuff, so that that whole that whole era of Nintendo is completely blank for me. But I have heard people <laughs> talk about it, so yeah, I think you're right. It's kind of strange to see a, a puzzle collection or a game collection in general from a first party publisher like Nintendo having only three games on it like it's really weird that they didn't like go go all out and put a whole bunch of other puzzle games on there too like no tetris or like i love that puzzle game on game boy kicks is really cool oh yeah it's a good one um but i just it's just kind of strange that like 20 years since nintendo's been making games publishing games on their hardware they only they only put three puzzle games on this one it shows a lot of either restraint or just that they didn't have the resources to do more yeah it also makes me it's as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I'm like, okay, what other puzzle games have they actually like developed themselves? Like Dr. Mario, we know they developed, and Yoshi's Cookie, and uh, Panel Day Pond. Like, 
te- I guess Tetris technically yes, but I could see that being a licensing issue because mm-hmm. yeah. I think everyone and their mother publisher wise has had their hands on that yeah. <laughs> at some point. Yeah. Um, Kicks is another one, but I think that was Taito that did. Yeah, that. it's not that. I know that's no, they didn't the publish function. a lot. That's for sure. Yeah. No, I'm, now you have me really thinking. Were there other puzzle <laughs> games that Nintendo actually had their hand developing back then? Because we've seen even more puzzle games from Nintendo over time from that po- from the point of this release up to now. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mostly mostly Pokemon themed puzzle games, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess that's the point. I guess that's true. The, the title of the package is the Nintendo Puzzle Collection. If they had thrown in other stuff, then it wouldn't have made any sense. Yeah. It would have just been a puzzle collection featuring three Nintendo puzzle <laughs> games. Uh, so I guess that, that answers that answers my question then. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of it in terms of like it's been 20 years since this collection. So they could definitely do something like this again and have a more uh, fleshed out game for sure since like uh, they could include all of the... NES, SNES, GameCube, Game Boy Advance, Game Boy Color, like all of those puzzle games, 3DS and DS, like all those, we could bring back all these WiiWare games that are now (laughs) lost in the Nintendo graveyard. (laughs) And they would be perfect on the Switch if they would just, they would, it would make money. I don't know why they're not Exactly. Nintendo doesn't like money sometimes, but uh, (laughs) we've clearly decided Nintendo does not like money, but as was tradition on the GameCube was cool podcast, we used to read the back of the cases for games and... The thing about Japanese games that we quickly learned this week is that they're in Japanese <laughs> and I, I can't read them. But luckily, Mike happened to purchase this game in Japan last week. So, Mike, take it away. Why don't you hit the back of the case this week for the Nintendo Puzzle Collection? But first, Victor, hit us with that sweet jingle. It's time to read what's on the back of the case. There's things written on the back of the case. Let's read them. And now we're reading the back of the case all right neil i'm going to uh do my best with the the translate app here on my phone where i take a picture and it tells me what uh is on the picture in uh in english you know what it's not that bad it 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 gets the message across for okay (laughs) for what it ended up doing three puzzle games permanent storage software doctor three (laughs) (laughs) i'm not surprised nintendo with a Mario Yoshi's cookie. <laughs> Puzzle games have been come out as one. Of course, it is possible to play two to four heated players. <laughs> we panel the pawn, replace the panel left and right, and erase the same type of panel. Just a simple game. Attack the opponent with a big chain. That's right, Dr. Mario. Turn the capsule around and get rid of the virus. Capsule of the same color as the virus, let's line up the four and erase them. Yeah. Yoshi's Cookie. Delicious cookies that drool just by looking at them. (laughs) Let's erase the same type of cookies in a row vertically or horizontally. Use the GBA cable. Let's play Joy Carry. You can download the game to GBA and play Joy Carry with you. Let's enjoy three games for download. The Game Boy Advance becomes a controller. That's it. That's that's awesome. You can kind of understand. Yeah. We should have done this the whole time. <laughs> when the GameCube was cool. We, we should have just we should have just been converting the Japanese games to English and reading them that way. Man, we should go back and do that entire thing again with that with that concept. It it also got me thinking. Like with these puzzle games, uh, uh, it's too bad. Like my, maybe my one con for it is that it's too bad they didn't try and integrate 
the three puzzle franchises into like one big game or something. Like they're very similar. They're all have the same ideas in terms of matching uh, colors and, and shapes and everything. It, w- it would be cool to have some kind of mode where you're playing all three games at once. Instead, these games are completely separate entities, very much like the Super Mario 3D All-Stars, where you click one and you kind of boot up an entire ROM of that game. So that's that's one thing I would have liked with this. Yeah, that would have been really cool. Like a cro- like that. I mean, these days crossovers. That's very common. Yeah, I see something an like ultimate that. crossover. <laughs> this was be- way before that, but uh, there is an ultimate crossover here in this collection, mm-hmm. Mike, that we need to talk about now, which is the Dream Mix World Fighters, released on December eighteenth, two thousand three, developed by Bitstep, published by Hudson. It's on the GameCube Japan exclusive, of course. Rates a seven out of ten. Uh, Mike did not see this one while he was in Japan, but imported. It's around one hundred dollars, and this is a fighting game. And uh, there were only a handful of fighting games released on the GameCube. Most of them are somewhat forgotten, basically with the exception of Smash and Soul Calibur 2. About 5% of the GameCube's library was fighters. And this one is actually pretty good. So, uh, Marcello, do you have any experience with the Dream Mix World Fighters game? I do. This is actually another one I do have in my collection. Um, <clears throat> so this is one I covered in my episode two years ago when I covered Japanese exclusives. And I loved this one. Um, I just... The bizarre aspect of taking Konami characters and Hudson characters and characters from mm-hmm. uh, uh, Takara. So basically, you have Optimus Prime versus Simon Belmont versus Bomberman. <laughs> I mean, like, it's absurdly awesome. And it's funny, like, nowadays it doesn't sound maybe as crazy with, like, Smash Ultimate taking everything from anywhere at this point. But here in mm-hmm. Optimus Prime fighting Simon Belmont, to me, I just thought it was hysterical. And you throw Bomberman into the mix, and it's like, there are just wacky combinations of characters here, and I love it. It's it's crazy. Like the 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 character roster. I'll, I'll give you the seventeen playable characters here. Uh, we got Bimbogami. We got Bomberman, of course, from Bomberman. We got Majimaru Sengoku, uh, Master Higgins from Adventure Island, uh, Momotaro, uh, Yugo Ogami. A bunch of these um, Japanese characters that I don't really, really know, but that's nope. from Bloody Roar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from Konami, we got uh, Moai uh, from Gradius, uh, Power Pro Kun from the Power Pros, Simon Belmont, of course, from Castlevania, Salt Snake from Metal Gear, Twin B from Twin B, and then from Takara, we got Asuka from Psy Girls, Lika Kayama from Lika-chen, uh, M121 Mason from Microman, Megatron from Transformers, Optimus Prime from Transformers, and Tyson Granger from Beyblade. Like, what? The what 10-year-old else? kid from Beyblade. Is- <laughs> <laughs> but think about it. Think about how you're reading off that roster. Like, if that was a North American release, I mean, Optimus Prime alone, I would have been like, all right, cool. Simon Belmont, I'm like, okay, even more badass, because, you know, we didn't get Castlevania anything on the GameCube. No. And, yeah. You know, Bomberman is just Bomberman. You can't go wrong with Bomberman. And had that been a North American release in the magazine for me to see, and I'd be like, oh, yeah, I want that game. Like, without question. Oh, without question. I mean, and this this was the era of uh, wrestling games, too, that mm-hmm. had these uh, crossovers, you could call it, you know, uh, NCW versus NWO or WCW versus NWO uh, with, like, a character of, what, 40 different uh, wrestlers from all different organizations. Uh, like that was, I remember when that came out for N64, that was such a crazy thing to be able to play all these wrestlers. Most of them I didn't even know, but like there was, uh, the fact that I could play as like Sting and Hollywood Hogan at the time, like, uh, there was a lot of crossover there. Uh, so it, it was pretty cool to have like all these different characters. And that's the first thing I thought of when I saw this one, where just seemingly like three random companies, that come are coming together and being like, all right, here's our characters. Like, 
go nuts, I guess. Like, I, I feel like you, you, you mentioned Marcella with, uh, with Smash Ultimate and how they are taking all these characters and everything. And, and that seems to be a big thing, especially thing, I think like something like Fortnite as well, which just seems to take everything from everywhere. It doesn't even matter what they are. But I feel like something specific as this couldn't happen today. I think the licensing would actually be too hard uh, rather than taking like one uh, from Konami or one from Takara. They're taking a whole roster from each company, which is a bit different than something that happens today. So I think this is a very unique thing in, in gaming uh, history. Yeah, I agree with that. This is definitely one of those unique instances that's a product of its time. And it, it makes it all the better for the fact that it was a product of its time. But yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting game because it is a Smash Bros. clone, for a lack of better terms. It really is very similar to the concept of Smash. You beat the crap out of the other person, but instead of having a percentage gauge where basically you knock them out of the level, um, you keep hitting the opponent until a heart floats out of them. And what happens is, is the person who just lost their heart, they become tiny and they're pretty much handicapped, whereas the person who just beat the crap out of them the uh, opponent has to grab the heart and once you grab the heart you actually knock them out Mm. it's an interesting twist to the smash formula but it works so even though it's a smash clone it also has its own twist to give it its own identity but this is definitely one that i had a lot of fun playing Uh, i'll admit when i was recording the footage for this game before i had to talk about it in my episode i think i played this one a bit longer than i was anticipating (laughs) i think i put it a solid couple hours and I was like, oh, yeah, I still need to, you know, write up and record about this. It also has a really neat story in it, too, that a lot of fighting games at the time were trying to incorporate uh, to varying levels of success. It actually reminds me a lot of a game that we covered, uh, Ultimate Muscle, I think had a very similar story to it. Uh, and this one, the fledgling World Fighters television program has been suffering from poor audience approval and is on the verge of being canceled uh, by Dream Mix TV. Uh, and to prevent the, to prevent them from getting uh, from getting canceled, the hosts invite various superstars from differing realities to compete in a show in order to com- to co- in order to increase the uh, the television ratings, which I think is a hilarious premise for a fighting game, honestly, because it's very self aware of like it, it kind of reminds me of what wrestling storylines are actually kind of based on. Sometimes it's just trying to obviously just improve their ratings and they're not even trying to hide that and i love that this is the group of people that they come up with you got tyson from beyblade fighting simon belmont the vampire slayer from castlevania it's awesome it's really cool it's also very like brain breaking to watch this game expecting to hear optimus prime's voice or or tyson's voice or or like uh, solid snake's voice and you just hear Japanese grunts and yelling. Like, it's it's all the Japanese <laughs> voice actors. It's not the North American voice actors that you're just so accustomed to hearing and seeing in movies, cartoons, and video games. And then it's just another reminder that it's like uh, the, the other half of the world does not experience uh, media and cartoons and pop culture the same way you do. It's a really cool, it's a really cool uh, culture shock to get that. And I also love the music, too. Like, it goes from uh, games that I love, like F-Zero. Like, some of the... Some of the uh, tracks in this game are really cool, like really futuristic sounding uh, techno music. And then it gets to like these, some of the music goes like really weird, like kind of anime music that you'd hear like in a weird cutscene where the characters are talking. Like it goes from really upbeat kind of bubblegum anime music to like really futuristic hardcore anime music. It's really, really cool. Yeah, I agree with that. The, it's funny, as we're talking about this, I actually have a song stuck in my head from this game. So <laughs> again, it's a testament that it has a good soundtrack. Yeah, good good earworms in this game for sure. And it just yeah, just such a 
a crazy game to play. Uh, would you rank this pretty high, uh, then, would you say, uh, amongst the fighters and brawler games on the GameCube? I would. I mean, I know back in the day when I was researching this game, it was one of those games that like kind of straddled the 6 to 7 out of 10 range. Um, yeah. I think this is one of those games that nowadays stands out more. Um, but this mm. is actually my second favorite uh, Japanese exclusive uh, aside from obviously Kuru and Squash, but this is up there for me as well, just because it's just a blast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, I mean, it looks uh, like so much fun to play. I, I really wish we got a North American version, but I, I assume the reason is really just licensing that we didn't end up mm-hmm. getting it. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I mean, we'll probably tie this in later on, but uh, just as like a little fun fact, I'm currently in communication with somebody who's actually been tasking himself to do English fan translations for these Japanese exclusives, uh, one of which is a game that we're going to be talking about shortly, and I'll, I'll state that when the time comes. But this is one I'm going to talk to him about seeing if he can get an English fan translation done as well, because this would be sweet to have a fan translation. Man, yeah, and 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 put in the voices too. That would be great. <laughs> Keep the voice acting for this fighting game in there. It makes the game so much more stylish. I love it. It fits. It would be so weird to have this game with North American voice actors. No, just I know, I know. Quite fit. A classic fighting game. Very good game. Marcello's second favorite Japanese exclusive game, which is a great segue into the next game on our list here, which is not. <laughs> universally praised <laughs> which is robocop aratanaru which is new crisis i'm not japanese obviously it was released on march 4th 2004 developed by nintendo software technology and intelligent systems published by nintendo it's also on windows ps2 xbox it was only released in north america on xbox not on gamecube which is really weird uh rates of four out of ten mike didn't see this one again in japan but imported it is three to four hundred dollars canadian and it is a movie tie-in game based on the robocop series which i've seen the robocop movies but never played a robocop game before i thought that we had a robocop game on the gamecube that we talked about i had to go back but it was judge dread that i was thinking of Mm. Uh, very similar style games but uh this one is uh pretty (laughs) rough to look at Uh, mike you mentioned you didn't see this one have you played this game or have you do you own this game marcello so i don't own this one but i did cover it and uh yikes yeah this is one that (laughs) (laughs) so this is a game that's just it's fascinating in like the worst ways possible um how do do i even begin (laughs) so robocop is a franchise obviously just a popular 80s cultural icon uh, in terms of action flicks right and it had nes games had arcade games for the first two movies and actually the third movie as well which third movie sucked but um that being said when this game was coming out it, this is like kind of a real a game that was like in release hell um, yep. the xbox got it exclusively in in north america in pal regions it was exclusive for the ps2 in japan it was exclusive to the gamecube i don't know who was smoking what when they released this, but it was almost like all the people were like, yeah, you know what? This game kind of sucks. All right. Where, where are we going to release it? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So going back to the gameplay itself. Yes, it is a first person shooter. Um, I mean, what should worry you is when you see the Titus logo on there, it's might as well just yeah. be LJN. You know, it's going to be just, just trash. <laughs> it's just, it's a, I don't even know how to put it. It's a very clunky game. And, I don't say that in a way where it's like, well, it's RoboCop. He's supposed to be clunky. No, th- th- it just doesn't play well at all. It's not even like you feel like RoboCop. It just feels like it's a generic FPS that 
gives a lack of direction on what to do, even though it's, I mean, it's in Japanese. Well, the text could be in Japanese at times, but it's also like a hybrid of English in there too. Yeah. Um, it, it's just a rough game. It's a really, really rough game. I, it, it, the performance is inconsistent. God, it was one of those games. I'm like, oh, you know what? Like this, this might not be that bad. Like this might be a little bit better than I thought. It's, it might be a fun licensed game. Um, and as I was playing, I'm like, God, I need to shut this off. This is, this is just. I can't even get past the first it's, level without just being bored out of my mind. It assaults <laughs> all of your senses at once. Honestly, it's probably the best way I can describe it. Like visually, it's a mess. It's, it's extremely dark. It's hard to tell what's going on graphically. It's, it's choppy. I think the frame rate probably dips down to ten <laughs> at times. There's no textures. It looks like it looks like a rough running N64 game, and mm-hmm. I love the N64. It, it kind of looks like they were trying to mimic Perfect Dark. A lot of it reminds me of yes. like that, but that that game is uh, sleek and makes sense and is still fun to play today, whereas this isn't. Uh, the C-stick controls are really sensitive, so it's impossible to play the game competently. Mm-hmm. Um, the voiceover, the acting is, first of all, really bad, but also it, the audio sounds, it sounds like they're <laughs> recording it in a bathroom. Like that's, <laughs> that's the best way I can describe it. It's hollow, it's tinny. And it's just all, it's so bad. And on the HUD, I know Mike and I love to talk about the HUD of video games and first person shooters. There's definitely a delicate balance of too much going on and they overextended themselves. And there's way too much going on on the screen. You've got, you've got like power and shield meter on the top, right? Mm -hmm. Which I don't know what the hell the difference is supposed to be. Um, (laughs) And you're, you're of course a robot or you're a cyborg. So you switch between visions, which is really cool. That's, that's half of what the movie is. It's kind of like a Predator or a Terminator kind of thing, but they 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 tried to copy it exactly from the movies, and it's so jarring going from infrared to like heat-seeking to like your radar to your regular vision. It sucks. Like It's so bad when you're switching between views, and it makes it impossible to play and to, to shoot people, to aim at people, and yeah, like it's just the audio, it's the graphics, it's the gameplay. None of it goes well, but what about you, Mike? Did you have any uh, anything negative to say about this game? <laughs> Uh, that we didn't already say (laughs) i think you guys basically covered uh most of that for sure i think honestly like what marcello said like the 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 most negative part of this game is probably how it was released like what a terrible release schedule the fact that it's released for very specific regions for very specific consoles like it's so strange to me i've never seen anything uh like this before uh the fact that yeah just gamecube uh in uh, the, the Japan only got the uh, the GameCube version, and like I, I don't understand why Japan would have even got the GameCube version before North America. Like RoboCop is a North American franchise, uh, and but this was also done by Titus, which is a French company uh, as well. So this uh, there was a lot of focus on EU stuff too. And I think if I remember correctly, in your uh, video, Marcello, you did cover this game, which is uh, really the only reason I wanted to do it here because it was I, I liked yours. It was pretty <laughs> oh, funny thanks. when you <laughs> when you covered it, and you mentioned that they, these are the same people who did Superman sixty four, right? So I don't know if it's the exact same team, but it's still Titus that. Mm. worked on it so could it have been the same devs possibly <laughs> was it better than superman 64 i mean jesus christ yes i would i would i mean anything is almost better than that uh outside of batman beyond return of the joker on the n64 somehow Ooh. that was a hold my beer scenario um <laughs> but that being said yeah the, the, it's a shame you have such a great property and if you just yeah. when, it's a shame when you waste that potential or you just it doesn't stick the landing. I'm sure the developers were really excited about working on it, but I'm sure there's something that 
just was completely lost in translation during the development, whether it could have been rushed time, it could have been just not enough resources. Um, so that being said, I'm actually excited for the new RoboCop game coming out on the PS5, which is Rogue City. That actually looks like a good RoboCop game. And we really haven't gotten much RoboCop content, honestly, uh, like since probably since 2003. We, we had that RoboCop remake movie, which I saw mm-hmm. and was I did not like that at yeah, all. I didn't hear great uh, things yeah. about it. <laughs> I saw yeah. it, too. <laughs> yeah, it was not good. But but uh, RoboCop is a very endearing franchise. The honestly, I think RoboCop toys sell more than than, than any other uh, RoboCop medium. I see those all the time. I love the original for sure, and and two as well is pretty fun. Um, so I'm glad that we are getting RoboCop content still, and that uh, this game did not kill all hope for it. <laughs> no, nothing can. Not even Titus can kill the RoboCop name. I was actually thinking about like what would be good for RoboCop, and that the PS5 game does look pretty cool. I've seen a little bit of snippets of it, but RoboCop would be a really cool candidate for VR. I was thinking about that. Ooh. Like you're already the RoboCop has like that helmet on sure. already. Like so, you would already feel like you're putting on the helmet and you're taking control of of the RoboCop. So that's something that maybe Sony could look into. Maybe they could think about making a game for VR at some point. That would be great. Um, RoboCop would be a good, uh, would be a good candidate for that. But Sorry. I was going to just say, Neil, you basically just made me now no longer want the PS5 game. I now want that. <laughs> that that's what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Like just like watching this game, like seeing them switch between visions and like, like basically that this game could have first of all saved itself by just being an on rail shooter, but <laughs> bringing it back it could it could be a really cool vr game and and all of these all of those like characters like even judge dread is a great one like all of these mm-hmm. 80s characters that had helmets and and robots and whatnot like it, it's great it would be great for vr but i don't really know what's going on in vr land i don't plan on buying one so it doesn't really matter to <laughs> me but that's enough uh bad game talk let's move on mm-hmm. to a game that's actually really really good which is uh curin i'm not going to say this right which is curin squash released on october 14th 2004 developed by Ating, published by Nintendo. It's a GameCube exclusive. Uh, not a lot of reviews on this game, but according to GameFAQs, it's a four out of five stars, and I believe that. Uh, Mike also did not see this one, but uh, goes for $100 to $300 imported, depending on the uh, condition and whatnot. And this is a puzzle game, and the best way I can describe this game is you control uh, the Curarin, uh, who is off to save all of his siblings after they went missing on a family trip across the four countries of their in-game world. And in a nutshell, you're, you're kind of controlling this spinning matchstick through mazes and avoiding obstacles basically like a helicopter and your whole goal is to just avoid touching the edges avoid touching enemies and 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 obstacles and reach the end of the puzzle and you do that over and over and over again but something about that gameplay loop is incredibly uh, addictive and we talked about it a little bit at the beginning there mike and i both love this game already but marcello this is your favorite japanese exclusive gamecube game so talk to us about it yeah, so like I was saying earlier, the, you know, I have a history with this game. So finally being able to play this, um, I was really excited. This is another one that was I, was actually planned for a North American release, but just never happened. Much like Kuru and Kuru went on the GBA, um, it just never happened here in North America. But yeah, so basically, like you guys said, the premise is you're just you're in this constantly clockwise rotating, like. Uh, I forgot what the name of the actual vehicle is called, but we'll call it a matchstick for the sake of the it's podcast. It's called the, the Hellerin. Hellerin. I can't say that's it. Hellerin. Yes, that's that. right. That was the name. Um, so, <laughs> and you're, you're navigating it through the courses, and you're trying to turn, you're trying to move along where, like, if the course turns, you're trying to time it where you're actually moving the whole device, the whole vehicle itself alongside mm. it, so that you're not hitting either end of it on the wall. So you get up to three hits. 
after the third hit, it's back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you navigate, there are stations where you can refill your health, and you can also hold down a button to go faster or let go to kind of go to normal speed. What was interesting about this one versus the original and the GBA was that you can get weapons attached to your vehicle this time around. Um, first time around, you did it, and this one you can get something like boxing gloves so you can punch objects out of the way. Um, <laughs> it's just as like one example. So I thought that was interesting. And then, if I'm not mistaken, there are even boss fights in this one, which is was never in the GBA version at all. But I guess because of the fact that you actually get weapons, um, that's part of the twist. Um, and actually, yeah, like I said, when I played this, I love it. I think it's a fantastic game. I think it's another one of those games that truly deserves a chance here in the States. And I'm going to say yeah. much like something like Fire Emblem, which was a Japanese exclusive for many years, and then they finally took a shot at bringing it here to the West, and it took a, you know it took off over time. Um, I would love to see this property get a proper collection or HD remaster or something to introduce it to the North American audience because it's it's a simple yet addictive game. And I think it's also a challenging game that I think people here would really enjoy. You know, not much else I can say other than just it's an awesome game. It's a really awesome game. It's a really good evolution, and you were saying that a little bit with uh, the kind of how you have weapons almost now on your little helicopter thing there. Um, the It's a really good evolution from the Game Boy Advance version mm-hmm. of it, which is, is something that, like, we don't see too much with puzzle-type games. It's usually just, here's the same game over and over and over again, <laughs> like yeah. uh, just for different consoles and different uh, versions of it. So it's neat to see that Nintendo was was putting a, um, uh, well, I guess it was aiding technically, but they were, they were putting a an emphasis on making something different and, and evolving it and wanting to make it more of a franchise as well. So it is too bad that we didn't get it in North America. I, I had seen this in stores and uh, and some gameplay of it over the years. This is probably the one Japanese exclusive I knew of. I knew that this was kind of a, a long-lost puzzle game that uh, that people had played. And I also knew it from uh, Melee. There was a trophy of the uh, mm-hmm. of the uh, Kukurin uh, in trophy in in melee, which was uh, really cool, because I remember things like Dashi yeah. the Giant as well in there, and Cubivore being like, "What are these things?" Like, because as a kid, you at least for me, I, I I dove very far into the games I owned, and and melee was one of them where I looked at every single trophy and I read every single description, because that's just what you did, because you didn't have the internet or anything, right? So you're just kind of like, let's, let's I'm gonna learn about Nintendo this way, <laughs> uh, and and so it was funny when they would have these Japanese exclusive. Uh, kind of uh, spotlighted uh, almost through Melee. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is a bit of an interesting one. And yeah, never really got to play it or experience it until this year with the Game Boy Advance player or the Game Boy Advance uh, online collection, having it on there. Very addictive, very fun. Uh, The first thing I think of whenever I see it or play it is Super Monkey Ball. Uh, Yes. Very similar kind of stressful (laughs) uh, puzzle (laughs) game where you have to be very... um, very tactful. You have to know exactly uh, how to navigate uh, the the ship through things. You have to uh, honestly memorize many of the levels because it definitely starts off relatively easy, just like Monkey Ball does with uh, with the stages, and it gets progressively harder and harder until you're getting to some crazy difficulty levels that honestly remind me a bit of like playing something like Ikaruga, where you're just like going as fast as you can, and you really just have to memorize the patterns uh, a lot, but uh, it's it's such a fun game, very replayable. 
It's also really fun to watch. Uh, you can find them on YouTube. People playing uh, the the GameCube version of the game, Game Boy Advance as well. But like the later stages are wild. I think yeah. I think it's one of the last stages in the game. If five seven, I'm assuming that's near the end or could be the end. And watching the the little matchstick spin around and and the guy just just inching or like just narrowly avoiding every single obstacle, collecting every coin along the way, dodging spike balls that appear to be moving at random, pausing at certain spots, speeding up at certain spots. It's really impressive. And it's so sad when you check and see the view count of that video is less than a thousand. And it's like, it's really fun for people (laughs) like us who just get incredible satisfaction out of watching these puzzles. It's weird to call it a puzzle game because it also feels like you're playing a pacifist action game because you're just trying to avoid stuff. Um, (laughs) It doesn't feel like a full puzzle game, even though it technically is. And you nailed it, Mike. It definitely would uh, capture that Super Monkey Ball audience and even Mm -hmm. like maybe even scratch into the WarioWare fans or even Mario Party. Like this game is very colorful, very bright, great for kids. I love the music in this game too. We haven't even talked about that. It's super upbeat and catchy. Like I was listening to it on YouTube, just, just passively listening to the music it's really good and it fits the the theme of the game so well and i i love that the character flying your your character kurin uh in the plane he's a bird and i think that that's awesome that he's got a flying machine like yeah it's not like it's not a ground animal it's literally an animal that can fly flying this thing i think that's yeah. really funny it's, it's so good cute. Uh, yeah. I, I really like the artwork around it too and like it it just it's one of those few games that i've seen uh for not just exclusives but other I guess maybe like lesser known Nintendo properties where I'm like, oh man, this this could have been a franchise. Like this had its potential. It had all the ingredients to make a really good franchise in in anywhere in North America, Europe, wherever. And, and the bizarre thing is that there was a sequel for the GBA. So technically, this is a trilogy, and it's like, again, it's one of those things where I would love to just see a trilogy remaster released here. On the, like, how great would that be to have? On the, well. Kuruku-Kuruin's already on there. So let's at least get the GameCube one remastered on the Switch and just make it happen. But actually tying in a bit to what I was trying to state earlier. So uh, one of my contacts uh, that reached out to me was telling me how he's translating uh, Japanese games. This is the one that was just completed that he wants me to cover on the channel, which I will be in the near future showing the the English translation of this game. But the entire game um, has been translated into English. Um, Wow. And I think that's fantastic because hmm. uh, he actually goes by the handle, I believe, is um, I think it's New GBA XL. I hope I didn't screw that up. But um, despite the fact that I'll, if I did screw it up, I apologize, and uh, <laughs> I, I will make sure that's clear for the video, just because I haven't had a chance to talk to him in about a month. Mm-hmm. But that being said, he is. This is one of the guys that's working on these English fan translations, and I thought it was fascinating that this was the game he just finished because this is my favorite one. So I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. I'm definitely going to revisit this now, all in English. But like the heads up displays uh, changed. Um, you know, like everything is just. It, basically, it's one of those things where it's like Nintendo hire this guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool, and I, I'm so glad he put the time into to actually doing that for for a game. That's arguably probably one of the best ones that's exclusive to Japan and obviously your favorite. Like, it's um, it's really, really cool to see. And I do think there is some hope for this franchise. Uh, I think the biggest surprise that any fans have ever gotten uh, in the last 20 years of, uh, of this franchise was it going on, the Game Boy Advance version, going on the Game Boy Advance library online. Uh, that was such a surprise to me that that was on there. And yeah, we have some hope. We have some hope. No. 
not only that it not only that it got on the Game Boy Advance service, but it was on there day one. Like that's yeah. interesting. That's interesting that they they chose of all the Japanese exclusive GBA games, and there's a lot more GBA love for the on, in Japan than there was on GameCube. Uh, it was the first one, and it, there was only what eight games on on the first day, and uh, it was one of them. And I think it caught a lot of people's attention too, mine included. Um, so that must have shown them something. So I think I think you're right, Mike. I think we'll see something in the future. You know, that meme that goes around where it shows Leonardo DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street where he's like pointing while holding a drink. And yeah. Th- that was me when they showed that direct and they showed this game. That was me on the couch <laughs> pointing at it. <laughs> I'm like, get out. Are you serious? It's awesome. What? I was thinking of another meme where it's like the uh, Nick Cage and uh, uh, Pedro Pascal (laughs) in the car and like Nicolas Cage is all the Nintendo fans asking Nintendo for these franchises to come back and and Nintendo kind of just smiling and then looking forward like no (laughs) it's basically the way it is we'll give you this very obscure random Japanese exclusive on here which hey I'm I'm Mm. fine with I'm uh, I'm glad that uh, that it's on here and I'm glad that we do have a future for it. One game I would love to have a future for, but it's probably dead. We'll, we'll see. Is uh, a game called Homeland, Neil? That's right. Homeland was released on April 29th, 2005. Developed and published by Chunsoft. It's a GameCube Japanese exclusive. Uh, no ratings on this game. And according to IGN's uh, game, <laughs> according to IGN's page, this game was never even released. Uh, it just says coming soon. <laughs> just as coming soon on their page. I don't know what happened there. Uh, priced $25 in Japan, $80 to $150 imported, and this is an RPG, an online RPG. Uh, there are only a few other RPG games on the game. There are only a few other online games on the GameCube, uh, four in total. Three of them are, are Fantasy Star Online games, and then Homeland. Yep. And Homeland is unique amongst the uh, the RPGs because uh, it's the only one where the GameCube itself acts as a server rather than the player using a central server. Uh, that means that all of the online games available on the Cube, Homeland is the one that can technically still be played on the native hardware because you don't need another server to play it. Your GameCube acts as the server itself, which is really cool. Yeah. It's very cool, and it still has a bit of an online community, too, that does exist. We'll get into this a bit later. But, uh, Marcello, had you ever heard of Homeland before we uh, messaged you to come on for this episode? I did. Um, that's one I've been wanting to cover on the channel, which I'll probably do in a even more uh, GameCube Japanese exclusives. Yeah, that's one of those that... <sighs> See, RPGs, I feel like, are going to be one of those games that if it's not in your native language, that language barrier is basically going to prevent you from fully experiencing the game or at least maybe getting by through the game so i think yeah. that's what kind of intimidated me to not cover it yet um mm-hmm. but that being said i do know of it i know about its relevance because uh you know being an online game and that in and of itself for the gamecube is definitely relevance because like you said there's there was not many it was just fantasy star online one and two one and two plus three um which people forget those even a fantasy star online three um, yep. Yep. <laughs> we remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I thought that was fascinating that there was something like that. And it's just a shame that because the online never took off here, I think that's part of the reason why we never saw that get translated and brought over localized for North America is because, I mean, the Nintendo GameCube broadband adapter just did not take off anywhere for, for North America. No, and and a big reason for that was Nintendo's hesitancy towards online at this mm-hmm. time. Uh, they really wanted to be known as like the kid-friendly uh, gaming uh, console, especially uh, with N64. And then with the GameCube, they were trying to target their more 
uh, mature gamers and and uh, and have a bit more adult-oriented titles, but they didn't want to publish or develop online games themselves, so they just let the third parties be like, hey, if you want to make an online game, you can, but obviously these third parties didn't want to take this risk, so they just didn't do it or didn't include online uh, and instead put the online for the PS2, uh, uh, which worked out better for them, for Nintendo not so much, so it was a bit sad that we didn't see more online games and more use of the, the adapter, but um, yeah, Homeland is very unique for the reasons that Neil said there with uh, the fact that the GameCube itself is used as as, as a server and it's also just unique as being one of the strangest and weirdest games I've ever seen but also extremely charming beautifully designed uh honestly amazing graphics for the time um and and I, I could see how much fun this would be to play if I was Japanese um <laughs> the best way I was thinking of this last night uh the best way to describe this game in my opinion is uh Animal Crossing, very similar to Animal Crossing in terms of the look and, and the feel, uh, mixed with two other obscure Nintendo properties, uh, Dosh and the Giant and Cubivore. Uh, mm. would be, if, if you put all three of those games together, you get Homeland. Uh, and and uh, obviously with an, a big RPG element, because there is a story in it. How much of the story I uncovered was unclear. Yeah, what's uh, going on in that story there, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> well, basically, you start off, you pick a character. You could be, be a boy or a girl. You're in a very Animal Crossing-esque town, uh, this house. You are basically chosen by uh, some angel, I guess, to be uh, a keeper of this mm -hmm. world. You go into a bunch of different worlds as the game progresses. Uh, it's honestly a huge game there is so much to explore I, I i only got so far as the first world because i didn't honestly know where to go or how to get out of it uh because i don't read japanese so it was mostly just me <laughs> guessing and trying to translate it when i could uh but uh yeah it's it's mostly just uh you're acting as this kind of god character uh, at points and you uh have these little uh i uh, questers is what they're called and there's these little kind of um uh, think of them almost like assist trophies that that follow you everywhere, and you uh, to or in order for them to be part of your team when you're uh, facing bad guys, you have to hold their hand, and uh, and that is a a whole thing in the game is is holding people's hands uh, in order to I guess basically give each other like the same powers uh, and and fight people. The 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 fighting is is relatively basic. It's it's a turn based RPG, uh, and uh, it works quite well though because. Uh, one thing I love about it is all the menus are octagonal, and uh, that's because of the GameCube's analog stick on the on the left side, and it does it exactly how where you're pointing the analog stick, which is also octagonal, it, uh, it is able to select it really, really fast with this wheel, and it's honestly a super intuitive thing that I wish more GameCube titles had. I uh, honestly don't think many GameCube titles, if any, had this this feature to just really quickly select things from a, almost like a weapon wheel, but uh, instead it was a dialogue wheel. And there's a lot of really unique things in this game, one of them being that you can type answers to uh, to, to some of the CPUs and they'll understand it. I thought that was unbelievable. Uh, mm -hmm. I wish I could type in Japanese, uh, but I, <laughs> I could not. <laughs> so I was just typing random things. And I think what would happen is that if it didn't understand the word, it would just give me the same kind of prompt every time because I noticed that it, it started being the same thing that would keep coming up. <laughs> but uh, uh, that was just a single player version of the game. There's also, of course, the online part, which is basically just a big MMO uh, where... 
there's a lot of different things going on. Basically, you're interacting with each other uh, in online mode. There's the, the player or one player can assume the role of the game master and basically like the god character that you have in the mm-hmm. game. And uh, it creates an online game for up to 35 other players, which is mind-blowing. Honestly, this game, incredibly, incredibly ahead of its time and something that would honestly work very well today. Yeah, as, as you're explaining this the whole time, I'm like, this is definitely ahead of its time. It took full advantage of the hardware in mind, yep. um, you know, especially with the controller aspect. And then as you're explaining it, I'm going, this would work on the Switch with like complete ease. This would actually yeah. take off, I think, if yeah. Nintendo were to drop this at a Nintendo Direct, showing how it was a GameCube <laughs> exclusive in Japan and showing these points that you made. Like this is definitely something where people would be like, wow, this is really cool. Like, yeah, I'm interested. Um so yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think it's definitely something that's a shame that never got or never made its way here to North America. But I could see why it wouldn't cater to the market at the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely fascinating. It's yeah, it's interesting. Uh because like I definitely see why it didn't happen. The the translation the the would be a huge undertaking because uh I could already tell that it's very colloquial like a lot of things were colloquialisms, like a lot of idioms and stuff was were said because it didn't make sense. Uh and the, the the talking was very casual between characters, uh very much like Animal Crossing is and and like that really got me thinking like wow like nintendo took a big chance on animal crossing um coming over because that that i know remember when we talked about that neil that took i think a year for them to do the localization of yeah Uh, it was a huge huge undertaking and it's just too bad that they didn't take the risk with homeland but honestly the biggest reason time this came out late 2005 the gamecube Mm -hmm. is not doing well uh not selling well in japan or north america um, there was no way Nintendo was going to take the uh, the time and effort it would have taken to to localize this because it is such a huge game. It would have mm-hmm. probably taken a year as well to do Homeland, and at that point they are looking towards the Wii to try and save them. Uh, so they they probably thought just let's hold off for this for now and we'll see what happens. Just too bad that this didn't come out on the Wii uh, mm-hmm. as a as a localized version in North America, but. Or even on like DS or even on DS or 3DS though, like where people can take these games with them on the go. Yes. Like Animal Crossing did very well once it went handheld. I think Homeland would probably have had the same up uptick if it had gone to DS and 3DS to be able to play play with each other online, to drop into each other's worlds or whatever. That God mode concept is very much Animal Crossing and it's something that people love, like the ability to interact with your friends, to either help them in this game, or you can also screw with them too. Like you can add monsters into their map so like they they'll get attacked by them. Yeah. Like you could really <laughs> you can really mess with people or you can help them. And I think that Nintendo could definitely make Animal Crossing is a very positive game. I think it would be cool if they made one that could also get go into the realm of making it difficult on your friends by adding stuff to their world. I think that that would be really fun, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. I don't know if Homeland would be the answer to bring like a sequel to it, but I think like a new franchise with this concept would be like a spiritual successor would be a neat, yes. a neat idea. Because you're right, the art style is cool. The character design is, is interesting. Like the... They're, they're very Animal Crossing-like, but they all have, like, Link's nose, basically, from Ocarina of Time. Like, the really pointy <laughs> noses and stuff. It's a really bizarre game, and I, I, I think it's really cool. It would be, it'd be neat to see it come back, but, uh, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. For now, it's uh, stranded in Japan, and you can bring it over for the low, low price of, what did I say, $300? $150. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, it's, uh, I, I mean, I got it for 25 so a uh, huge seal on my part. As soon as I saw it, I was like, yes, I'm picking this up. Thank you. Uh, I was really excited to play it and had honestly fun playing it, even though I couldn't read the uh, the words. And of course, it was developed by Chunsoft. And um, Chunsoft, Neil, you might know them for helping to create the Zero Escape uh, franchise. Yeah, Zero Escape and the Pokemon Mystery Dungeon games, too, which were very big on uh, yeah. DS and 3DS. And I think Wii as well, they made a couple of those. But yeah, they're a, they're a great developer and publisher. Um, very similar style of games, the kind of dungeon crawler, top-down, isometric-like games. Not 999, more of the Pokemon puzzle games. I love the 999 series. Those are fantastic games. Yes, yeah, uh, very fantastic. Too bad they never came out on uh, on Nintendo hardware. Well, I guess, no, they did. DS, never mind. They, yeah, they almost exclusively me. came out. On- <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still it's in my late. Homeland mode here. Yeah, it's late. I'm just, I'm just thinking about and lamenting Homeland. Uh, anything else you, uh, uh, you have to say about Homeland, uh, Marcello? Not much, other than the fact that it's something that I would have loved to check out one day. Um, but until that time comes, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. I'm excited cool. to, to, to watch your video when you uh, do a full breakdown of it. Uh, the one interesting thing with Homeland is I honestly have the best way to play it because uh, for those who don't know, to try and play Homeland on a modded GameCube or or an emulator, what ends up happening is uh, the text goes all weird. You don't get the Japanese text on it. Uh, instead, it can't actually get the Japanese characters to appear on screen. So it just appears as like a bunch of dots and hyphens and, and slashes. Yes. Uh, and that's because of, if, if I remember correctly, it's because the... The it it goes from the GameCube's language itself rather than the uh, discs language. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, do you know anything about this, Marcello? So I came across that issue when I was recording for my uh, first round of Japanese exclusives, and it was hit or miss. Sometimes it would show up fine, or it showed like you know actual Japanese language, and there were other times there were just a bunch of symbols in like, mm. hyphens. I'm like, whoa, what? I, at first I thought something was wrong. I'm like, okay, let's, let's try that again. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I would shut off the console, turn it back on, try it again, and then like it would work for a bit, and then it would change. It was bizarre. Um, but that's because I was also utilizing my, my North American GameCube with a GC loader built into it, uh, running the games off an SD card. So like it was right. running off of a North American console. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I've seen people try and do the Homeland one, and yeah, like you said, it just uh, all these random symbols and like, oh, what's wrong? So, <laughs> at least for mine, I can have the Japanese and try and translate it as I as I might. But uh, Neil, there is a online community that still exists for Homeland. Like you said, you can still play this game online because the GameCube acts as a server. It's pretty interesting uh, that this still exists, and I'm glad that people are are trying to keep this game uh, alive because it is such a, a unique game. And um, and uh, there is a Homeland Reddit as well. There's also a lot of resources to, to playing this game, to uh, translating this game as well. It's it's cool that it d- still does have this community. And one last thing I want to say about Homeland and just how good this game is is. All the endings of this game, uh, because there are decisions trees all the time based on what you do. Uh, it is very much an RPG where there is the good and bad sides. You can kind of get the good or evil endings. And there's 10 different endings in this game. So a lot of different paths you can follow down, uh, which, again, I just think is really incredible. It must have taken so long to design this game and, and create it with all its love. But um, Homeland, definitely 
a game worth checking out. And Neil, I do own this, like I said at the beginning, I did buy this game. So I would like to read the very small amount of text that we have on the back of this case, uh, translated through the translator app here. Perfect. The Google Translator app is flawless, as we learned earlier with the Nintendo Puzzle Collection. So please, what, what did they make of the Homeland back of the case, Mike? So in the Homeland back of the case, we have some lovely characters, all the different characters you encounter, all standing uh, with each other, holding some hands. There's a rainbow. There's some trees. It's very nice. It's nice. a very lovely looking case uh, nice. on the back. A and we only have uh, a, a bit of just like kind of... Uh, text that's in, in waveforms. It's just these little waves. And uh, and the first one says, defective world with water. <laughs> <laughs> Next one. What a free network play. Hmm. Uh, there's, there's a story in the bottle. The story is already coming out. <laughs> <laughs> Smaller one here. The blasphemy. <laughs> and then the last one is connect to broadband. Nintendo GameCube adapter is new. So that's. They sound uh, like tool lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this uh, it feels like a haiku that I'm reading or something yeah. on the back here. But uh, yeah, that's that's the best it could do for that one. Uh, uh, didn't I didn't learn anything about the game uh, from the back of the case. Had to play it myself. Had to learn about it uh, myself. But uh, probably my favorite of these five. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that's it for the GameCube Japanese exclusive games. Uh, and we've obviously covered these five games here. Now, Marcello, we do have a, a, a last question for you here. If if we could cover a sixth game, a sixth potential game uh, on uh, the GameCube for a GameCube exclusive Japanese release, what, what do you think we should cover? What do you think would be the next best one to talk about? All right. So if there's one more game or a sixth game you'd like to add, I would say Bomberman Land 2. Now, I'm not mm. going to lie. This is not very... Um, English friendly because <laughs> this game is loaded with a variety of genres. What's interesting is that this was actually developed by the same team that did the Snowboard Kids series for the N64, which was oh, Rakshin. Cool. And how do I describe it? It's it's basically a collection of genres that culminates into like a package. So there's a 16-bit RPG mode. There's a 16-bit dungeon-style crawler. There's a 3D kart racer. There's like puzzle games. It's and, and there's just also the traditional Bomberman itself, but the culmination of all the genre types and that they're full-fledged games in and of itself is actually pretty impressive and actually pretty addicting. I'm not going to lie. Outside of the RPG aspect, because I, I had no idea how to progress without any English. <laughs> <laughs> but um, the fact that it had like a kart racer built in, I thought was pretty cool. And, hmm. um, you know, the dungeon crawler aspects were a lot of fun and, it was just one of those things where I was like, wow, really? We never got even like maybe a DS translation port something later on. But yeah, mm. Bomberman Land 2. That's one I would cool. definitely look into nabbing. Bomberman? I mean, I, I've always loved Bomberman. He's always been a, a favorite of mine for sure. I have a sticker on my uh, on my yeah. laptop here. Uh, and uh, I don't think we've ever gotten like a proper Bomberman collection for this, like for Nintendo software, if I can mm -mm. recall. Nope. So it's pretty cool to have all his different stuff on uh, a lot of his different stuff on, on, on a, uh, on a console release like that. Yeah. Bomberman's an interesting franchise. Like we get the occasional game on Nintendo gets a couple every generation and they always do very well. And yeah, collection would make a lot of sense because there's gotta be, 
I want to say dozens of Bomberman games, but I bet I'm going to check and there's probably like 50 at this point. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> that would be a great, imagine if they made a collection that big, that would be awesome. Um, yeah, you're right. There's never any kind of like massive collection. That'd be, that'd be very cool. I love that. That's, I'm sorry that the English translation is, or the, the translation would be really hard to do. Hey, I did Homeland, all right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. I didn't realize Bomberman was a wordy game. You wouldn't think that a lot of English translation needs to go into it, but I guess uh, here we are. Yeah, they, they made an RPG out of it and they're like, okay, yeah. it's going to be text heavy. Um, Interesting. But again, not just one of the modes, at least the other ones were definitely playable without having to yes. do that, thankfully. But I'm also still sitting here hoping for Bomberman 64 to hit the uh, Nintendo online service Ooh, yeah. for the Switch. Yeah. Because that's That'd still my good. favorite Bomberman. That would be very nice. I, I played the SNES Bomberman a lot. Um, mm. I, uh, I had a friend who did like a Raspberry Pi thing where he had all the SNES games on it and uh, the the SNES Bomberman. I'm I'm not sure what that Bomberman is called, to be honest. Is it just Bomberman? Like, I, I don't know. Super like, Bomberman. A Super, Super Bomberman. Bomberman. Yeah, right. that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. So I played that one a lot um, on, on the uh, emulator and I loved it. I had such a good time. I, I had played Bomberman a little bit as a kid, but uh, I didn't remember too much of him until I kind of went back into it. I was like, right, right. This game is actually really fun, especially playing with friends. So yeah, like a console version, like Bomberman Kart Racer, like and every like it, it would have it would have worked really well. And we we had three Bomberman games on the GameCube, yep. uh, if I remember correctly, right? So mm-hmm. uh, there is potential there. The great recommendation. Uh, we'll definitely be looking into that in the future, and I'm sure we'll be doing some more Japanese games, maybe some PAL ex- exclusive European games in the future. So much that the GameCube has to offer that uh, we somehow haven't even touched, considering we've done 555 games <laughs> now, 560 games, Neil. Which is yeah. uh, we can now say that we've done a couple of of extras. But uh, Marcello, uh, we're going to give you this time to plug whatever you're working on uh, for your channel. And uh, and once again, thanks for coming on and uh, and giving all your your great uh, info and great knowledge about these uh, these games. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I mean, I've released a few videos in the last month. Uh, first off, I had a chance to go to Southeast Game Exchange uh, about a month ago down in South Carolina, which is a huge convention, uh, retro gaming convention. And I actually did a video showing how I got a Holy Grail GameCube game without spending a dime out of my pocket. Um, and Definitely one of my favorite videos I've put together. If you guys haven't checked it out, definitely go give that a look. Um, the most recent video I did was actually covering uh, Xeno Crisis for the GameCube and N64. And the fact that we actually got a new GameCube game in 2023, I thought was fascinating. Um, and I think it opens up the avenue of homebrew because I know that the homebrew scene has just been unlocked a bit for the GameCube. Yes. So I think we're going to start seeing a whole new scene uh, for the console. But an upcoming video I'm working on is actually... I am trying really hard to finish my video for this Friday instead of Sundays. I typically release video on Sunday mornings every other week, but I'm aiming for this Friday because this Friday is the 20th anniversary of F-Zero GX's release in North America. Mm. And I am hoping to get the video live Friday night and doing a live premiere of the review. It's going to be a very thorough, in-depth review slash mini retrospective. So I am really excited about this one. So, yeah, that's what's coming up. Wow, that's awesome. I can't believe it's been, sorry, how many years since F-Zero GX? 30 or 20 years? 20 years. That's wild. That game hasn't aged a day, too. Like, you play it today and it's still... 
still God. one of the best looking games on uh, definitely one of the best looking games on the GameCube, but still one of the best futuristic racers mm-hmm. of all time. Uh, everyone keeps asking about like, you know, th- we want a new 3D Mario game or, you know, whatever on, on Switch. And I'm just like, no, 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 we need F-Zero. I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'd, I'd run, I would take an F-Zero, a new F-Zero over a new 3D Mario game. Definitely right now if Nintendo went out. If, they, if I got a choice, uh, that's what I would take hands mm-hmm. down. Absolutely. I, uh, Oh, it'd be so good. I can't wait to see that video. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. I can't. I want to see that video too. That you uh, you picked up a, a, a mono, you picked up a Holy Grail uh, GameCube game for free. That's awesome. Congratulations yeah, on d- that. <laughs> yeah, like definitely. If you guys haven't checked it out yet, and then even for the viewers listening, like I said, that's a video that it, it's a story. It's a it's a different type of video than what I've done in the past, but it's a story that's from start to finish explains everything that happened, everything that went down. Um, I really tried to step out of my element to make this video. It's probably one of the most, it was a video that I was stressed the most putting together because I think I was just trying to make sure that it was like perfectly paced and perfectly told. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'll, you know, definitely let me know what you guys think if you check it out. Cool. Oh, I definitely will. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, I've been in Japan for a while. So now, <laughs> now I'm back. Now I can watch your, your, uh, your videos again here and, uh, and really excited <laughs> to see what you put out. Really happy that you're going to be talking about one of my favorite and one of Neil's favorite games of all time, F Zero mm-hmm. GX. Uh, can't believe it's been 20 years. Absolutely crazy. But, uh, Marcello, uh, please, uh, Marcello, thank you again for coming on today at GameCube Galaxy. For uh, those listening, please give him a follow. He basically does what we've been doing for the last three years, but uh, in video format. So uh, he is a great resource. And if you want to know more about some of these games, especially these Japanese games that we talked about today, please go check out his channel and see his two videos about Japanese exclusives. But uh, it's been great having you on, and uh, we hope to see you again real soon. Thank you, guys. It was great being back and uh, joining in on this. Take care, buddy. Have a good night. Thanks, you too. Bye. What a nice young man. What a nice young man. Thank you very much, Marcello, at GameCube Galaxy for coming on today, uh, talking about these Japanese exclusives. Uh, Really helpful to get his knowledge on these because, uh, weirdly, Neil, we are not Japanese and we uh, cannot completely understand these games. But uh, uh, it was a lot of fun to to play them uh, this week. Really, really interesting playing Homeland and and just such a cool game. I really, really hope that gets some kind of release in, in the future. Maybe, like you said, a spiritual successor. Mm-hmm. at some point um and it was funny i was trying to remember what uh, the last game marcello came on for was and uh we did have him on late in the gamecube library when we were talking with him the last game he was on was the mega man episode so i just want to give a shout out uh for anyone who hasn't already go back and check out the mega man episode where we talked about a bunch of different collections of, and mega man games that were on the gamecube library and i was looking at our notes here neil uh, mm-hmm. uh one of my favorite opening topics was in the, that episode and it's when we talked about fruit magnets on the the fridge <laughs> oh yeah that was a good one that's a classic opening topic there it's so good because every 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 old person has those fruit magnets uh, <laughs> every old fridge but yes thanks again at gamecube galaxy marcello for uh for talking with some japanese exclusives with us today yeah and even introducing me to that new he mentioned xeno crisis a, a gamecube game in 2023 that's awesome yes. i'm gonna look into that and see what that's all about it looks like it's released on a bunch of different consoles i had not heard about this so that's that's really neat um would love to see more of that. And that was really the whole topic of today was just Japanese exclusive, Japanese exclusives and exclusives in general. It's crazy how many games are not available to us in North America and vice versa. Mm-hmm. How many North American games are not available around the world? And I feel like that we might be getting closer to, to a world where there are no 
exclusives, you know, a world without borders, so to speak. Like, just give us the ability to, like, even if they don't sell yeah. very well, like, just give, why not? Just have the opportunity. I'm sure that there's a whole bunch of licensing deals and issues releasing games in different regions. Obviously, certain games are banned for various reasons. So I understand that. But it's weird to think that, like, just based on a, a, especially today when games are all digital, like why can't it just be available? And I guess it is now with emulators and whatnot. So I'm sure that we're getting closer and closer to a ubiquitous future uh, where all games are available everywhere, which will be good for everyone. Good to have those choices, but uh, no choice for GameCube games, Mike. If you uh, if you have a Japanese GameCube, you can play those GameCube games. If you have a North American GameCube, you can only play those games. So after talking today about all these games and you have now own a Japanese GameCube, would you recommend if you live in North America, you should own a Japanese GameCube? If you can get a Spice Orange one, which is mm. what I wanted, I unfortunately <laughs> just got the the Platinum one. I didn't own a Silver GameCube before, so now I have one, so I'm super excited about that. I now have owned a Black, a Purple, and a Silver GameCube. I just need that Orange still. But um, yeah, if you can find a way to pick up a Spice Orange GameCube for a good price, it is a Japanese exclusive. First of all, it looks absolutely beautiful, and I think the aesthetic alone is worth the money um, if you are a GameCube fan. But uh, if you manage to pick that up, yeah, like it's amazing to be able to play some of these Japanese games because you do see them every every so often. You'll see them even in North American stores every so often too. Yeah, uh, and they're usually quite cheaper uh, than the um, than the. Uh, North American versions, and they look cool. They're different. It's uh, if you're an avid uh, GameCube fan like us, it's really neat to have one or two in your collection uh, aesthetically, but also to to play and just kind of see what the differences are. It's mm-hmm. it's it's fun, and also something that was interesting it was how easy it was to honestly get through these menu systems and and intuitively figure out how to play games, even though you didn't speak the language at all. I think that was very powerful to see the fact that. I just played enough of these games in this era that I knew instinctively like where to go on menus and like how to click things and like what meant what like that was really neat. I honestly really enjoyed that. So I I would highly recommend trying to get a way to play these Japanese uh, games. I mean, there are obviously different ways you can uh, play it through emulators or there's the homebrewing options and stuff. But if you manage to to find an orange GameCube, uh, pick that up so you can play some Japanese games on that. Yeah, that'd be really, really cool. I'm excited to try my Pikmin game very soon with you on on your console. And of the games that we talked about today, we talked about five games varying in quality to from very good to weird to just bad. Um, <laughs> of the five games that we talked about, I would say that the one that I would love to play in Japanese or English is obviously the Kuririn, uh Smash game. Uh, I already love the Game Boy Advance version. I'm happy to have that on my Switch, on the Game Boy Advance online service. Um, I would love more. I would love to see the uh, the GameCube version, the brighter graphics, better music and all that. There's more options to play. We've got all those weapons that Marcello mentioned in it. Just looks like a really fun game to play. That would be the one of the five that we talked about today that I would love. And I would love to see Nintendo go back to that series. And I think like we talked about earlier, seeing their um, their support with it on the GBA, it seems like maybe they're testing the waters to see if some kind of maybe a port or a remake or a sequel would make sense on Switch. Maybe not physically, mm-hmm. but digitally. That'd be really interesting if they don't release it physically, but they probably would since it's a Nintendo game. Uh, I would yeah. love to see that franchise come back. So so maybe I'll just keep that game playing on my Switch. So Nintendo thinks that there's huge demand for it. I'll just never turn it off. I'll have thousands of hours on it. But what about you, Mike? Are there uh, are there any games that we talked about today that you don't already own that you want to be on the lookout for? Ooh, I mean, that's a good question. <laughs> the don't or I mean, um, 
the the two that I really wanted, uh, I own, which is awesome. I think the um, uh, the the fighting all star game. Uh, my, I forget what it's even called. Uh, the Dream World. Uh, uh, th- these titles need need fixing. They're not great. Uh, <laughs> Dream Mix World <laughs> Fighters. That thank you, Dream Mix World Fighters, which really tells you nothing about the game uh, other than it's a fighting <laughs> game. Um, I think that would be one that I would definitely definitely want to pick up uh the hearing the, the japanese grunts uh from yes. the characters uh and, and honestly just like the fact that i can play as optimus prime fighting simon belmont is just insane to me as a 10 year old it would have gotten me going nuts uh, today <laughs> 20 years later i feel the same way i'd be like oh my god this is so so cool and I, it was one of the big reasons i wanted to do this episode was to talk about a game like that and uh and so silly so interesting a cool f- a twist on the smash formula as well so mm-hmm. that's one i definitely i'm gonna be on the lookout uh next time i'm in japan <laughs> yeah definitely and honestly we're so close to having it really all we need is optimus prime and uh and uh, tyson from beyblade to be in smash and we're basically there to having <laughs> that game but mike well i'm waiting for optimus prime to finally be incorporated into smash bros to give sakurai something to do why don't let the listeners know what they can expect next week on episode 27 of the unlocking what was cool podcast for our last episode of the month, Neil, we are going to be doing our Patreon-elected episode. Our topic this week will be the leap from the GBA to the Nintendo DS. Uh, it's been very fitting. We've talked a lot about the Game Boy Advance in, in this week and past weeks as well, so I'm glad we're going to be taking a little bit of a closer look at that generation and that leap. Of course, you and I, Neil, were smacked up in the uh, center of that uh, when that was happening. Uh, you you went the PSP route and i went the ds route so yeah. it'll be uh it'll be fun to kind of talk about that what it was like at that time as well i i vi- had vivid vivid memories from when the ds came out and of course from me playing my game boy advance and game boy advance sp uh that'll be a lot of fun i'm really excited about that yeah that transition game boy advance to ds was interesting because mine was was game boy advance to psp like you said so that's going to be awesome i love that generation it's very interesting time for us we were just starting to get into junior high and we were starting to get into different games it was the the transition from uh always couch co-op to now more online games graphics were getting better people's tvs were also getting better too uh portable gaming was evolving as well so just a really cool time to be a kid and a cool time to be a nintendo fan so i'm really looking forward to talking about that with you gonna be a lot of fun going over some memories and of course the games that we played in that era but until then ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening to episode 26 of the unlocking what was cool podcast new episode every thursday on all the major podcast services leave us a rating and a review so we can make the show better you can support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash unlocking what was cool all patrons get to participate in our monthly patreon elected election thank you so much to everybody over there you can follow us on instagram facebook and join the weekly conversation on our discord channel share us with your friends and family tell robocop marcello says hi thank you so much for the support and we will see you next week see you later bye bye The Unlocking What Was Cool podcast is a recorded and produced show from Toronto, Canada. Our podcast is fan-funded by our listeners on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash unlocking what was cool. The show is produced, hosted, and edited by Mike Lane and Neil Gilbert. Additional voices provided by Victor Young. Special thank you to our Patreon supporters at the $5 level. AJ Olson 11, Bogus Lotus, Cube Dude, Dean Donian, Joey Sirico, Marty Thompson, Sparks Fly 027, and Way Overrated. Yeah, RoboCop uh, needs some love. He should be in Smash along with Optimus Prime. 
Probably. I mean, who would win? I, I would say Opti- Optimus Prime would probably win that fight, no? Surely. But the what's the 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 machine or whatever that the Megatron? Uh, no, no, like in Robocop, the it's a, the names and letters and numbers T three whatever. That's Terminator. You got the T one thousand. I don't actually know yeah. a lot about Robocop. <laughs> I just remember the, the the one scene of that dude in the boardroom that just gets obliterated in the opening scene. Yeah, by by ED two hundred nine. Thank you. There, oh. there you go. ED two hundred nine is the is the thing that that obliterates him. So uh, I want ED two hundred nine in there. I think that would be a better matchup against Optimus. I want ED two hundred nine in every office in in the city. I think that would be totally fine. <laughs> let's get let's get this go. Let's get our subway system in track, eh? <laughs> it, it'd clear out a lot of a lot of gunk in the in the office. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs>